You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Yeah, this is Peter Laurie speaking. I couldn't resist the temptation to call you. I just read of your new picture that you're to make. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thanks for your interest. Oh, I thought you were magnificent in M. And just the other night I saw your new picture, The Man Too Much. What character are you going to play in? Oh, it's the most unusual story. You know, it's a great love drama. I am to be a half-mad scientist. I, a poor peasant have conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? <laughs> he shall be shut up when it's I who am mad. <laughs> but nobody knows that. Yes. Each man kills the thing he loves. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. We are kicking off Shocktober month with Mad Love. It is the story of Matt and Casey, Seattle teens that find love. However, Casey suffers from clinical depression and is hospitalized for a suicide attempt. Matt, caring for Casey too much to leave her, helps her escape from the hospital, and they take to the road. Heading towards Mexico, Casey begins to experience the depression again, Matt trying to help her, sometimes scared. After another suicide attempt, he definitely... Oh, jeez, I can't even carry on. This is the, the worst written IMDb description ever, as I'm trying to make a joke about mad love. My God. I would also kill you if that was the movie we were actually talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, instead, we're talking about Carl Freund's final film as a director and Peter Lorre's first film in America, Mad Love. Based upon Maurice Reynard's The Hands of Orlac, the film shifts focus from the titular Orlac to Dr. Gogol, a cunning physician who specializes in some questionable procedures. He's fascinated by the actress Yvonne Orlac and, rebuffed in his advances, manages to enter her life after he backhandedly helps her husband, concert pianist Stephen Orlac, by giving him a new pair of hands after his has been crushed in a terrible accident. Well, give the man a hand! <laughs> but ah, what kind of gift are the hands of a murderer on a master musician? <laughs> is that dramatic enough? I love it. I mean, the whole movie is so wonderfully dramatic. We're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Mad Love, either version, uh, yeah, we're going to ruin the whole Drew Barrymore committing suicide thing, too. 
If you don't want it to be spoiled, go ahead, turn off the podcast. Come on back when you're ready. We will still be here. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw Mad Love and what did you think? So I think it's been about 20 years now. The first sort of branch of horror I got into, uh, horror movies, when I was a kid were the Universal films because they would be on TV every Halloween. And when I started to get those, I think maybe the first one I had was Terror on Tape, those, those sorts of encyclopedia books that list out horror movies and, you know, pre-internet days, something that will allow you to go on a feverish searching mission and seek out bootlegs and so on and so forth. And the first, some of the first movies I sought out were the kind of universal offshoots that didn't pop up on TV as often, like Dracula's Daughter or like Mad Love. At that time, I already knew who Peter Lorre was because my grandmother and I watched Casablanca about a million times. And so I instantly fell in love. And I think I was saying to you that I feel a weird sense of guilt saying this, which I'll explain in a little bit. But I think this is my favorite Laurie role. I don't think you should feel guilty at all. Laurie is in top form here. He is amazing. And this movie really put the zap on my head when I saw it. Oh, God. I think it was probably also about 20 years ago i happened to catch it on tv uh in one of those rare tv appearances apparently and i just was blown away i couldn't get over it and i had known a little bit of peter laurie and i'm going to tell this story again when we come to the maltese falcon episode later on in the year the first time I saw Peter Lorre, like I knew who Peter Lorre was, but the first time I really saw him in action and really remembered him in action was when I saw uh, the Maltese Falcon when I was in college. And when he starts doing the whole thing that they based the character of Ren from Ren and Stimpy off of, I was like, oh my God. Like when he starts calling him, you imbecile, you bloated idiot, you stupid fat, you Oh my God, this is amazing. So that was one I really fell in love with Peter Laurie. Before that, I only knew of him from like the Warner Brothers cartoons and just occasional appearances here and there. That's my, that's how I knew of him before I saw him was those Warner Brothers caricatures. And my grandmother would explain, oh, that's Peter Laurie. You know, he escaped. So my family is of German origin. So for some reason, whenever somebody German would pop up in a movie or like the Peter Lorre caricature in the cartoon, she would feel the need to explain that they were also German. Though I, I don't think she was aware that he was actually Hungarian. So told this great story about who he was and this talented actor and escaped from the Nazis. And I think even earlier than Humphrey Bogart, I knew who Peter Lorre was for a bizarre reason. The love affair began young. This is the only movie that I can think of where he shaved his head for the role. And we all know how striking Peter Laurie looks regularly with a shaved head. It just takes it to a whole other level. The thing I love about Laurie is the way, well, the way that his eyes will kind of bug out a little bit when he's upset or excited but then the way that his forehead moves and to do that with the shaved head just adds this whole other dimension that I haven't ever seen in a Laurie role. 
Well, he's so conniving, and he's at the center of this film. He is right there. It's like not like you know, Beast with Five Fingers, where he's kind of at the center, but he's on the periphery for most of it, and then he kind of moves into the center role. And it's not like uh, Stranger on the Third Floor, where he just kind of makes an appearance, you know, but he steals the movie basically. He's front and center, and we get him almost more. I would say more than any other character in the film. Uh, and deservedly so. I mean, the German version, which I know that we'll talk about later, calling that film Hands of Orlock makes perfect sense. But this film, I think they initially were going to call it, what, like one of the working titles was Hands of Orlock, but it just wouldn't make sense because poor Colin Clive, like he's great He's great in Frankenstein, but I, I know around this point his career started to take a downturn because of his extreme alcoholism and he just it's almost unfair how much Laurie steals the film away from everyone even if you were sort of okay this character's a little weird Laurie sort of over the top for the first I don't know 50 minutes I think it's 70 minutes long for the last 20 minutes of the film it it's like you can't process it <laughs> he's he's so crazy I did watch Robert Vine's version of Hans Vorlock just to compare, and that's got Conrad Veidt, who was also in Casablanca, but unrecognizable if you know him from his silent roles, because he changed quite a bit over the years. And that is the Hans Vorlock. We are dealing with Orlock almost entirely, and the the film lives or dies by his performance. And the doctor is there, but he is not the presence that he is in this because yeah this is dr gogol's movie i could see it being called like the med love of dr gogol or something but i don't know how that foreign sounding name would have gone over in 1935 although i guess he's the villain it's so confusing because he's the protagonist but he's also the villain even though i think the script doesn't really want him to be the protagonist he is anyway do we care about this character or do we root against this character? I mean, is he an anti-hero? It's a great question because I don't really know. I love watching him and he just burns up the screen. I don't want to say it this way, but I totally would have been on board with him killing Yvonne at the end of the film. <laughs> totally on board. But the way the film is now... Can you even imagine watching this in 1935? It's so demented. Some of the original parts that were in there that were cut out, which we'll hear about later on. I mean, some of that stuff is just insane. I watched it again last night, and I've probably seen this movie 20, 30 times at this point because I love it. It's one of those films that I try to rewatch almost every Halloween season. Even the opening, where it's this sort of benign, okay, maybe we could be in a Vincent Price film, or somewhere where you know there's this kind of air of the macabre that would come along in those like late 50s, early 60s Roger Corman movies. The scene where Gogol is watching Yvonne act in this sort of Grand Guignol type play, it's pretty intense, the, the torture scene. Like, you don't actually see anything because it's 1935 and it's Hollywood, but it's weirdly graphic and weirdly erotic in the, in the sense that there's no way you could possibly mistake what's going on in his head. Yeah, if he was fapping in his box, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, and the way it's lit, 
he could be. <laughs> but that shot is so beautiful. And I feel like you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Carl Freund is foremost a cinematographer. It's almost like he worked with the shape of Lore's head to set up these sort of amazing German expressionist shots that nobody, none of the other actors get those beautiful shots like that. So it's not only script wise, does he wind up taking over the film, but the camera just loves him. This is Carl Freund. Like I said, this was his last film as a director and I kind of wish he had carried on because his work as a director was fantastic, but his work as a cinematographer, always top notch. Just those opening credits are amazing with like the shadow that we see before the credits even start. And then that the credits end with that hand punching the glass. I love it. And the hands, of course, I mean, this is the hands of Warlock. Hands are everywhere in this movie. And we focus in on hands so much. It's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I think if you watch it, which I did one year ago, probably like six or seven years ago at this point, I should have done it yesterday. But if you watch it back to back with The Mummy, which I feel like it doesn't occur to people that that's not a Todd Browning film, it's Carl Freund. And there are very similar face shots for Karloff and Lore and hand shots in both movies. Like, like you get these really great scenes where the mummy's hand will creep up onto something and it just... I really wish he had made a few more of those 30s films because it's really just the mummy and mad love in, in terms of horror. But uh. people don't give him enough credit for being one of the greatest innovators ever in television that he managed to talk Desi Arnaz into shooting I Love Lucy on film, which is one of the reasons why I Love Lucy is still one of the most popular shows that is around is that it was preserved properly. It wasn't a telecine. And then, you know, we were talking before we started recording, thank goodness for Desilu because they helped bring Star Trek to the world. So thank you, Carl Freund. And Carl Freund is also the reason, which I think a lot of people don't know that, and I'm sure somebody would have come along and figured this out around the same time, but he's the first person to, revolutionize having a camera that moves around it's called the unchained camera and he was limited on i love lucy because he had to deal with the studio audience and couldn't just have the camera wherever he wanted but he did crazy shit in some of those early german expressionist films where in in this movie called variety he puts the camera in a harness so that he follows the movement of acrobats so that a camera swing, it's kind of terrifying to watch, but the camera swings through the air like like it's a trapeze artist. It's it's still amazing to look at, and it just to think that that's the guy who did all that, and now he made this horror movie. It warms my heart. I mean, I am no expert when it comes to early uh, silent film, and especially early German expressionist film. But, you know, that he was the camera operator on The Last Laugh, that he was the DP on Metropolis. I mean, these are these are heavy uh, credits to this guy's name, that he's a DP on Dracula. I mean, one of the best looking movies of the 1930s and still looks fantastic today. I mean, yeah, I can't say enough nice things about Carl Freund, even though I hear he was kind of a putz in real life. But hey, what you got to do, you know, if, if, if you're a great artist, I guess you can get away with a lot of shit. 
kind of a salty bastard, apparently, but so was Fritz Lang, who I guess the two of them, they worked together a lot, but apparently kind of ground their teeth at each other on occasion, which is no, no surprise. But I also heard that he wound up actually directing most of Dracula, that Todd Browning would wander off and the shoot would have to go on, so he would just direct. So that explains why it looks the way it does. Those eye lights on Lugosi's eyes are still just so haunting. I was having a conversation with somebody about this recently, and I can't imagine. So I think I brought this up when we talked about something recently, when we talked about the cremator, maybe, how I've been sort of delving headlong into German expressionism because I'm writing a book on M. And... It's made me think a lot about how different those universal horror films would be if all of those directors and cinematographers weren't forced to come work in Hollywood. What would American horror look like without, you know, the entire staff of UFA coming over and getting jobs? But Freud in particular, I think, is a just totally shaped what we think of as American horror. And it's just weird to think of that connection. Well, in that, Greg Tolan was one of the photographers on Mad Love. I mean, you've got Carl Freund in the director's chair and Tolan operating the camera. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, this movie looks amazing. There is not one shot in this movie where you're just like, oh, yeah, they, they phoned it in that day. No. <laughs> Everything looks great. That House of Horrors, it's great that two weeks ago we talked about The Cremator, which has this whole House of Horrors scene. And this one begins at a house of horrors which is fantastic and has that uh idea of the uh wax figure of our main character who is obviously i would say in what 95 percent of the shots it is her acting like the x the wax figure which kind of adds to this otherworldliness of it because she has the the gravitas of a human being rather than that lifeless piece of wax francis drake she looks amazing and she can pull off that still life thing really really well she can and i love that they did that i i actually was reading i forget what what movie this is in reference to it's one of those sort of early technicolor wax museum films i think it might be mystery of the wax museum where they talked about how they had to get actors to play the wax figures because under the intensity of the lights required for Technicolor, it was starting to melt the wax. I, I sort of wondered why in this film there are those few scenes where it's clearly a wax figure. Like when, when he first stumbles upon... So when, when the season is over and they're going to sell her wax figure for the price of the wax when he when he goes to buy it it's clearly a wax figure there but almost everywhere else it's her and that he keeps referencing galatea and pygmalion is wonderful and that oh god just the way that he will speak to the wax figure and that he idolizes the wax figure so much i mean it's it is one of those things where, I mean, as soon as he starts talking to the wax figure, you're like, okay, this guy is out of control. Like, and we've kind of gotten some hints before that because he is, 
I don't understand. He's a really terrible stalker because he doesn't know that she's married until he goes backstage on what ends up being her final night performing and is talking to her. And she mentions that she's going to go away with her husband and his reaction. One of those, again, the wide eyes, the skin going back on his head, just like your husband. And that he immediately starts saying, like, you know, you must go back to the stage. I must have you, pretty much. And the way that he leans in and that, like, zoom in on him and the zoom in on her. And you can just feel the revulsion coming off of her. I've come to depend on seeing you every night. But uh, I'm going to England. But I must see you again. I must. And there's that really gross scene just a few minutes after what you're talking about where they're having a season wrap-up sort of going away party and they have this amazing cake that <laughs> that has a guillotine on it and all of these sort of little Granguinal type candy sculptures on top of the cake and she's cutting a piece of the cake for every member of the cast and crew, giving them a piece of cake, kissing them on the cheek to say goodbye <laughs> because she's retiring. And somebody sort of slides Gogol in there and she's forced to give him a kiss on the cheek, but he won't let go of her. The look on her face is the same exact look he has when he finds out she's married. It's just this sort of abject horror. Like you can't believe this is happening. Then at one point he even says like, you know, you find me repulsive and she can't deny it. He has this weird. And one of the things that I love so much about his character is He's not really a stalker because you get the sense that he doesn't care about who she is. He doesn't want to get to know her. He's not trying to woo her by finding out her likes or dislikes. He, in his head, she exists only as this fantasy figure. So I think that's why he probably went the whole season watching every performance but never trying to meet her because he would rather her just be this you know, wanton fantasy woman who's tortured for her infidelity. That's true, because he is almost forced into her life. It's not like he's forcing his way backstage. He's not this backdoor Johnny kind of thing coming in and like, you know, oh, tell her that I'm here. It is much more of like, oh, you should meet her. And oh, you should come to our party. And oh, you should give her a kiss or she should give you some cake for a kiss. So there is that. But I think if she moved away... And he had the wax statue of her that he would be actually okay with that. You're right. I don't think that he would have gone to England to pursue her. I think he would have been fine just talking to that wax statue for the rest of his life. Which makes it so much more sad that fate conspired to make him even more nuts than he already was. That he then uses his influence. But again, it's almost like it's not even his idea. He's he's asked to save Orlock to save his hands after this horrific train crash. It's not like he hears about it and says, oh, I must save her husband. It's like, no, um, he kind of gets – and there's like a two and two equals four kind of thing where he happens to know that there's a fresh corpse because apparently he loves going to the public guillotines, never misses a chop, as they say, and knows that that's there, knows uh, that – Steven's missing his hands now, so let's put those two things together, folks, and come up with something good. 
unless I'm misremembering this, which is always possible, I'm pretty sure there's a scene where either at the morgue or someone at the execution makes a point to contact Gogol because he's usually given the dead bodies to experiment on. And it's something that everybody's okay with. So it's not like he goes out of his way and says, give me this murderer's hands. He wants the head, but he's just given the whole body because they offer it to him. So yeah, it's like it all sort of falls into his lap. Yeah, I think it's the the French. Uh, well, it's all French because there uh, there's only the there's the British characters. This allegedly takes place in France. <laughs> there's a some very questionable French accents here. Uh, but yeah, it's the uh, chief of police is like, oh yeah, call Doctor Gogol. Let's get him over here. We're gonna kill this uh, American murderer. I love the American murderer Rollo, and then the American reporter, and both of them when they finally talk to each other, it's just like the thickest American accents you can possibly do. Just like, hey, chum, how you doing? Hiya, buddy. Hiya, partner. Tough luck, kid. <laughs> we all get it in the next someday. Say, tell me something, will you? Anything you want to know. Well, I'm from Las Vegas, and I hear they finished a big dam, biggest in the world, and it's making a lake 200 miles long. It's the gospel truth, kid. Well, what do you think of that? It's like they've stepped out of a Brooklyn set from a 1932 gangster movie. My One of my favorite parts in the entire movie is when Rollo, the knife thrower who's being executed, he's up on the scaffold and he starts cracking these jokes. <laughs> it's just so perfect. It's It almost doesn't feel like the other Universal films in the way that it's really dark, but doesn't take itself super seriously. No, no, there's some, some really good black humor in this, which always comes... Uh, unexpectedly. Yeah, the first time I saw it, I definitely remember being shocked that he cracks a joke right before he gets his head cut off. Well, in that that weird thing, too, when we were first introduced to Rolo on the train, and there's a, a previous scene where there's an old man and he's feeding sausage to his dog, and um, that's when we meet Colin Clive officially as Stephen Orlack, and he's just like, you know, I'll keep quiet about your dog if you give me some of your sausage. <laughs> and uh, then uh, when they hear that Rollo's going to be on or is on the train, the old man with the dog goes over and is talking to him. And then there's a cutaway, and then they cut back, and apparently the old man had insulted the woman that Rollo had killed. So now he's all up in arms, and he throws this penknife uh at the the old man and then i love too that when orlock comes in he's like oh that's my pen and then we get that later on that same exact line when he's like that's my pen i was like oh that's great and of course you know i i think of uh uh, uh kids in the hall with that amazing skit about my pen my that's pen that's what it makes me think of too stop him And it's so nice to see Key Luke show up in this. For folks who don't remember, Key Luke, mostly known by his later work, especially his work in Kung Fu, but he is so young in this and that he is another doctor, which is nice that he's a doctor. He's not just like the lab assistant. He's kind of the good side of Gogol because Gogol is doing some amazing work and he's helping out a lot of people and he's saving this little girl. But pretty soon, Gogol doesn't necessarily care about that stuff as much he starts to get obsessed even more with the whole idea of once he figures it out that he might be able to drive steven mad and then swoop in and get yvonne 
and those, I mean, because he starts to fall apart and fairly quickly. I mean, it's great, too, that we talked about the cremator with the way that our main character is so quiet about his madness. And in this, Gogol is anything but quiet as he cracks up from that beginning character who's kind of content to watch this woman in plays to, no, no, I must have her. I must have her. He even says at one point while laughing hysterically that he's mad. And it just like he knows and he doesn't care. Like it's not slowing him down. <laughs> there's, there's this great moment where the real Yvonne is is in his house, which it it's in Paris, but it looks like it should be a castle. Like it's, it's so gothic looking. And she's pretending to be the statue because she doesn't want to get found out. And he starts talking to her and he tells her that she belongs there. The real her belongs there. And he he's going to imprison her and never let her leave. <laughs> it's, it's like the look on her face grows more and more horrified. And there's like no rational way that you can accept that. Gogol still thinks this is a, a statue. Yeah, she is emoting like crazy. And he just, yes. I mean, she practically screams in his face. It isn't until that cockatoo uh, scratches her face that he finally realizes that she's a real girl. And then he's like, Galatea, you have come to life. <laughs> the old crone, Francois, the, uh, the housekeeper, she's an interesting use of comic relief in this movie i have to say yeah more black comedy and she kind of i don't think this is intentional but she sort of reminds me of the super annoying her name is pretty famous but it's escaping me the super annoying maid or who takes care of the castle in frankenstein and bride of frankenstein the lady who shrieks at the top of her lungs uh frau blucher now I'm going to start making young Frankenstein jokes, but no. So there, there is this sort of housekeeper character who's not drunk all the time, but she's like always in a panic. This lady is so much funnier than that character because the, the way they pass off her accepting the statue is she's just drunk, <laughs> which I shouldn't laugh at. That's mean, but it's really funny. The mistaken identity thing going on with the reporter, and he thinks that she's talking about the dead body of Rolo, but she's actually talking about the statue. You know, brought it, brought it in with the head on. What the head was chopped off? I think that might have been a little bit more effective had we seen the the head of Rolo a little bit more, because there were some things where like they kind of put Rolo's head back on, but. It still works, and especially when God, the the strangest moment of this movie for me is when Gogol decides he's going to drive Stephen mad, and uh, he kills uh, Stephen's father. And Stephen's father is just like the biggest bastard in the yeah, world. He, I love it. <laughs> he so deserves it. And when uh, somehow. Gogol has gotten word to Steven to meet him at this uh, bar and he shows up and he's supposed to be like the reincarnated reincarnated Rolo and those amazing metal hands that he has. And that kind of 
Eric von Stroheim uh, neck brace that he's got to keep his own head on. <gasps> so cool. So good. And I swear to God, I don't know if he's talked about this in interviews anywhere. So that, that scene is probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. And that and the scene that comes afterwards where he takes off the costume while he's walking up the stairs. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a minute. I swear to God, the whispering when Gogol slash Rolo is sitting down at the table, it sounds exactly like the whispering from Tenebrae. And there's no way that Argeno wasn't influenced by that because it's just it's so effectively creepy. Out of all the weird things that happen in Mad Love and all these sort of comedic moments, it's downright scary. Was it you who telephoned me to come here? Yes. You said you'd tell me the truth about my hands. They throw knives. How do you know that? I have no hands. Yours. They were mine once. I don't know what it is, but it sometimes it feels like all of Peter Lorre's films belong to the same cinematic universe, or at least a lot of them do. Yeah. There's a dream that he has about a train. Of course, the train comes in to chop off Stephen's hands and all this stuff. And of course, you know, you, you see uh, a train now in Peter Lorre and we're just like, oh, yeah, he's going to get murdered by a train in the lost one. He's going to jump out in front of one. Great. Or, you know, just stand there, actually. Um, and so, OK, so there's a little bit of that. When they start talking about the fingerprints, I'm immediately thinking about that amazing shot in M of that huge fingerprint yeah. that's behind the guy. When, oh, I love that shot. That's one of the most beautiful shots for I me. Know. I know. I love that scene so much. And it's always exciting to me to watch something like Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion and know that it's sort of – went on to have that same type of scene, went on to have another life in another film, because they do exactly the same thing. And just such a beautiful use of that that type of sort of boring police procedural procedural imagery that we associate with, you know, TV crime dramas. To have it used in such an innovative way before it was even a genre it's just it's wonderful the other thing that reminded me of another laurie film was that the female becomes the investigator and it reminds me a lot of stranger on the third floor like at least google doesn't show up and start talking about you know this puppy that he has saved or anything but he's kind of lost at first he's very lost like that character from stranger on the third floor and he could be, I mean, I, obviously he's not the same character, but he can portray that sympathy in this movie as much as he did in Stranger. And then, yeah, go completely off the fucking rails and just be this madman and give this amazing, over-the-top, screaming, laughing, thank God he's talking to himself and giving away all of his, all of his nefarious plans. <laughs> Kind of, kind of uh, monologue as he comes back after scaring Stephen to, uh, nearly to death. I do think he has the sad puppy moment in this film, though, because there's that great scene where he fixes this little girl, and you get this sense that he's not so good with human interaction or in feeling emotions, but took on the challenge just because it was 
difficult and just because it was a challenge and doesn't charge her mother at all and just says, has this great line where he says, I don't operate for money. And it's like, okay, so are you independently wealthy? That aside, it's that same tragic, sympathetic thing. If you've ever seen the face behind the mask, that's another one where it's from a couple years later and it's like sort of a horror movie, sort of a crime film where he becomes disfigured and has to get revenge on these people who disfigured him. But so it's like, he's the protagonist and the monster at the same time. And it's just so sad and sympathetic. (laughs) It's, it's almost hard to watch. Like you want him to kill everyone (laughs) and not a lot of actors can pull that off. Right. Yeah. That he ends up being spoilers for the beast with five fingers, but he ends up being the murderer in the beast with five fingers. But at the same time, you're like, this guy just wants to hang around this house and read these books and learn the powers of <laughs> predestination. <laughs> What's the big deal? Just let the man be. I lo- so that, that character, Hillary, I think his name is the secretary is another one of my favorite Lorai characters because Like you said earlier, he doesn't start off as the protagonist. It's these insufferable piano players who I hate and want to watch them be tortured to death, which sadly doesn't happen. But it slowly shifts over to become Peter Lorre's film as Hillary just becomes more and more unhinged. But it's so out of typical Lorre fashion it's not over a woman it's because all he wants is this fucking library and he's been promised this library and then when an inheritance changes hands he's now told that he can't have his books anymore even though no one else wants these books only he right. wants- who wants these stupid books and so he loses his goddamn mind over a library <laughs> it's so perfect <laughs> which i can completely sympathize oh with. me too i would do the same thing not that that's a real life spoiler alert or anything, but <laughs> you keep the the disembodied hand in the safe as well. Oh, definitely. What makes you think you have one there now? <laughs> the whole idea of these hands and well, hands the piece with five fingers, right? But the hands in this, hands in in uh, um, psychoanalysis, uh, the whole idea of amputation of the hands is very analogous to castration. So it's almost like Gogol is cuckolding. Stephen Orlack, he removes the hands, but then the way that he puts back the wrong hands, it's like if you were to think of that in terms of like a, a castration thing, it'd be like you remove the guy's dick, and then you put on the wrong dick. And it's just like, okay, this is kind of weird. And that the whole idea of him looking at his hands and these just aren't right. I mean, those are some of the best scenes for me. And Colin Clive, of course, who can play unhinged very well as well. We know that. He does such a great job with that, though I have to laugh every time I watch this movie and it's they show him after the surgery and it's him and Yvonne and they're out at this like idyllic park and he holds up his hands and they're the most bandages I've ever seen on hands ever in my life. It almost looks like he's he's a hockey player wearing goalie mitts like (laughs) they're giant. It looks like something like out of a Zucker Brothers film. (laughs) It's like Frank Drebin just got a paper cut and this would happen, you know. (laughs) I agree with you totally about the castration anxiety because in a very real sense, and this isn't Google's fault, this is the accident's fault, but having his hands mangled, it sort of takes away his ability to 
support himself and support his wife. It takes away this creative ability that's obviously at the core of his personality and he doesn't know what to do with himself without it. But it also, in a very real way, takes away his masculinity because it's like his relationship with his wife is now totally different. She's the caretaker. She's sort of was expecting to be a wife and not have to work or act anymore. And now she's the one who's sort of trying to keep his piano from being taken away by the debtors. And it just, you, you get why he's so unhinged, but at the same time, you kind of don't feel bad for him because he's kind of a baby. I always have these off the wall interpretations of things. So let me just throw this one out there and you can tell me that I'm an idiot. (laughs) When Steven's father, like I said, one of the most, unlikable characters ever He's off. <laughs> when when he says you know oh here you are crawling back to me yada yada well a great musician eh what do you want can't you forget can't we be friends uh, how's the piano playing well since my accident i haven't been able to play uh-huh. can we go into the office so that's it you've come here for money i never said so but I thought you might have a little understanding. Sympathy. Sympathy? <laughs> oh, all right, Father, all right. I don't want your money. That's good, because you won't get a franc, not a sou. For years, I wanted you in business with me. Uh, being a tradesman wasn't good enough for you. Now that your hands are smashed up, you can't thump a piano any longer. You come crawling back to me. And that actress you married. Why don't you let her help you now? Her pay may be small, but she could... Uh, supplement her earnings, eh? Stop it! The thing that I immediately thought was that he was basically trying to tell Stephen, you better pimp out your wife. Oh, for sure. That's exactly how I took it. I think audiences in the 30s probably would have taken it to mean that even more directly because of that sort of association between acting and prostitution and acting being this really disreputable profession. I mean... It's not like she's Sarah Bernhardt. She's working in this kind of low-rent Grand Guignol theater where she's moaning in ecstasy because she's being tortured every night. So I think that association is a pretty strong one. And that's why he flips out. And boy, does he flip out. And like I said, Colin Clive can flip out really well. But he flips out in a very specific way. It's not in this Peter Lorre... I'm maybe going to go insane and murder your family way. And it's not in this like Sonny from the Godfather flipping out kind of way where it's super masculine and really violent. It's, it's like a man driven to the brink who's flipping out because he's in the middle of having a nervous breakdown and just sort of flailing like a child. (laughs) It's not Sonny. It's Fredo. It's definitely, he's Fredo. He is Fredo. Maybe that's why I hate his character so much. And I can't say that that Gogol comes off much better when he is whining about his inability to capture the heart of Yvonne. Because now, at one point, he kind of manages to shift and say, like, I'm going to drive this guy mad and I'm going to get Yvonne for myself. And the way that he says, you know, I've conquered science. Why can't I conquer love? 
I was expecting those words to come out of like fucking Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory or something. I'm just like, yeah. this sounds like one of those a-hole men's rights advocate guys where it's just like, women are here to serve us. Why isn't this woman coming back with my affections, returning my affections? Part of that is he looks at everything as an obstacle to be conquered. So True. in his head... You could make the case that he has no understanding of interpersonal relationships because aside from his drunk housekeeper, who he never talks to, he's alone all the time. Not to excuse it, but I think it comes from this place of not understanding that she's her own person, which certainly all those (laughs) men's rights idiots have the same problem. I would argue that his is maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I think it's just I'm blinded by my love for Peter Lorre that I want to keep coming up with excuses for why it's okay. (laughs) You can conquer love. Of course you can. Think. You thought for others. Now think for yourself. Power of suggestion. See how easy it is? Already working. Splendid. Splendid. He's a weakling anyway. Do it. And then she'll be helpless. She must come to you. I want to excuse him of everything, including cold-blooded murder. Yeah, that guy's a bastard, though. He Really, he was doing everyone a favor. That is true. And the way that he dies, it's so rude. That <laughs> it's like you, you kind of have to give him a break, I guess. Well, it's neat because... He basically has given Stephen the way to kill him, which is really bizarre that you think about it like, you know, I'm going to replace your leg with a machine gun and then I'm going to get shot by the machine gun later on. You'd be surprised by it. (laughs) Rose Chekhov McGowan's machine gun. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit that sort of dramatic like ironic reversal thing where he's hoisted on his own petard in a way that makes sense. But it's, it's also, I think, and maybe I'm reading way too much into this, but so you have all these universal horror movies where there's this milk toast leading male character who is by action movie standards or even really by contemporary cinema standards they're just so ineffectual and useless i mean you've got one in the mask of fu manchu you've got the worst offender in dracula and the mummy and freund kind of makes fun of this a little bit because in the mummy it's not uh the actor's name is escaping me right now but he plays the lead in both dracula and the mummy and i just can't stand him he sort of accidentally saves the day in Dracula, but in The Mummy, it's the rug is just ripped right out from under him when Freund uses probably the single weirdest example of deus ex machina when she prays to a statue of Isis who, <laughs> who comes and rescues her. And here, it's similarly like you have this super ineffectual hero who spends most of the movie having a meltdown, And he sort of saves the day by stabbing the villain in the back. But it's also kind of ironic because it's it's not like he's doing it of his own volition. He's doing it, like you just said, because Gogol gave him that power. Was it David Manners? 
Yes, I hate David Manners. Well, yeah, we talked a little bit about him in the Black Cat episode, and yeah, he he is milk toast. You're totally right. He's milk toast in the Black Cat too. It's like for the love of God, just go off with Lugosi or Karloff. Like, could you leave David Manners behind? <laughs> yeah, I I wouldn't mind being one of those brides of uh, Karloff in that film. You know, you get to look beautiful forever, forever, and you have hair that somehow defies gravity in a way that I still don't understand. <laughs> Hell to the S. And I've seen those Brides of Dracula, too. They're looking pretty hot as well. Exactly. And they don't have to deal with him sort of simpering all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you how I really feel. (laughs) Yeah, really, really. I have to say I'm sad at how quickly Mad Love wraps up, that it is basically he's dead. Stephen comes in, grabs her, takes him, uh, takes her into his arms. Boom. End of movie. The end. And it's like, no, no, I want a little bit more. I know. It makes me sad that it's so short. I mean, I think Black Cat is like an hour and 20 minutes. Most of them are about 80 minutes. So most of them have another two scenes. But it also, I don't know, I I really wish that, and maybe I'll start watching it this way, which is super weird to admit out loud, but it's fine. I wish it would end when he so he has her on this couch and he takes her braids and starts wrapping them around her neck and is going to strangle her to death. If it just went to black right there, that would be a much better ending. I mean, you don't actually have to see her murdered, but there's the implication. Maybe end with a scream over black. Yes, exactly. Can we talk about the weird Oscar Wilde quote, which has never made sense to me? Right before Gogol goes to murder Yvonne or attempts to murder Yvonne, he says out loud over and over again, each man kills the thing he loves, which is a really probably the most famous line of Oscar Wilde's poetry that's quoted rather than one of his just like random sayings or quotes from a play. It's from the Ballad of Reading Jail, which is one of the most depressing like gutting, heart-wrenching poems I've ever read. He wrote it when he was basically dying in prison. And so, like, how does that line find its way into the end of this film? I just don't... it's, It's beautiful, and I love that it's there, but it just comes from out of nowhere. Yeah, and it seems kind of sudden that he will murder her. And it seems like he should say something, at least, like, if... I can't have you, no one will. I actually love that the film doesn't even pretend that he thinks they're going to have some sort of commitment or even a rape or some sort of exchange between two living humans. It's, nope, I have you, and now I'm completely unhinged, and the reason that I wanted you here all along is basically to torture you to death, which... Actually, that's how the film should end, because he's so obsessed with watching, in the beginning, with watching her be tortured in these plays that I don't really understand why they didn't write in a scene where he finds, like, he punishes her for coming to life too soon or some wacky thing. It feels like a little bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah, had they mirrored that and he tied her down to the chair or something and... uh did those actions that that would have been really cool like imagine that scene from the pit and the pendulum but with a sort of young bald 
Peter Lorre in a fantastic fur coat. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. The outfits in this are amazing. And those, just those publicity stills of him. Oh man. You could just put those things up as a poster and I'd be very happy. I should find one actually. Cause this is definitely one of my favorites. And he's just hypnotic. I mean, his performance in this, but even just to look at the guy in this Google get up is just, oh man, fantastic. He's a, a strangely beautiful man, especially here. And an M, I think, but more so here. Yeah, an M, he's still so much a kid, it feels like. Yeah, which I think adds to the film in a lot of ways, but there's something kind of extra creepy about it. Like, he's still got that baby face. Yeah. And here, his face is still round, but the baby face is gone. Yeah. I guess that's what happens when you have to flee Nazis and run from country to country. <laughs> well, we're going to hear about more of that in just a few minutes here. We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Gregory W. Mank, the author of Hollywood Cauldron, 13 horror films from the genre's golden age. And we'll also hear once again from Stephen Yunkin, the author of The Lost One, A Life of Peter Lorre. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, exploitation, drive-in, and B-movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're going to discuss the Rene Martinez-directed picture, the $6,000... Last what? Time. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. Super Soul, that's, brother. That's the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that comes up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh. <laughs> <Do it. laughs> Please do. And listener favorite, Iris. The deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock? What the fuck is a deployment sock? He goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use? Oh, my God. You guys are so gross. <laughs> See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. 
that's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Obviously, I want to ask you about Mad Love, but if you're all right, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background and primarily how you decided to get into writing about film. I've written a number of books about uh, about old Hollywood and particularly about uh, horror films in old Hollywood. Uh, it, it sort of started as a, a childhood fascination uh, when I was about six years old. The old uh, shock theater uh, pictures came on, the universal horror films came on in Baltimore, where I grew up. That would have been 1957. For some reason, I have no idea why I was fascinated by them. Nobody else in my family was. My parents had never been particularly interested in them uh, or anybody, but uh, they, for some reason, really hooked me. And um, I became very interested, even as a kid, in knowing more about what might have happened you know, behind the scenes, how the actors felt about their roles, uh, all the things that happened during the productions. When I eventually uh, graduated from college, started to look for some work as a writer, um, I started to pursue this sort of thing. And it was really kind of funny because I had always hoped somebody would write a book about particularly the universal horror films, the universal Frankenstein films, the eight of them, uh, starting with uh, Frankenstein 1931 and then moving up to Abbott Costello, Meet Frankenstein 1948. Uh, all eight films, and um, nobody ever did, so I figured I would. And um, <laughs> I had not a whole lot of background at the time for doing that sort of thing. And of course, it was that would have been 1979, so it was um, you know before the internet age, before you know a lot of things that we can 
uh, go to now for help. But the great advantage back in those days was the fact that a lot of those people who worked on the films were still alive and able to uh, to be reached and able to be interviewed. And so, for example, on that book, I was on that, about the Frankenstein films, which was called It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein. I was able to talk to Elsa Lanchester, who, of course, had played The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, and Charles Barton, who had directed Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and Kurt Siodmak, who had written the script for uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and a bunch of other people uh, who were still around and still salty and still had lots of crazy stories to tell. And um, so that was the first book that I did. That was way back in G. That was the book was published in 1981. So I figured that was pretty much it. You know, that would be it. Uh, but here it is, all these years later. I'm I'm still uh, in the field. But I have to say it's very enjoyable and it's a lot of fun. And it's always uh, it, it's amazing how many uh, discoveries are out there to be found and. Um, uh, you know how much new material it seems every year turns up on these films and the actors and the productions and and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a real kick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, that's of uh, what thirty year career going on uh, going on. Well, it's been uh, yeah closer to forty now. Forty, yeah. Uh, actually, uh, even sometime before it kind of started uh, unofficially. Um, uh, my wife and I were on a vacation in Los Angeles in 1974. I was fascinated by the fact that Beta Lugosi had been married to a woman named Lillian uh, Arch, who also later had married the actor Brian Donlevy. I was a big fan of both Lugosi and Brian Donlevy, and I thought, gee, if I could talk to anybody uh, in this field, and I'd love to uh, to um, get some memories, it would be uh, Lillian Lugosi Donlevy, because you know she could tell me all about Bela, she could talk to me about Brian. And gee, I wonder if I ever could find her at that point. You know, Lugosi was long dead. Don Levy had died not long before that. And uh, she was in the phone book. <laughs> so there wasn't any great, uh, you know, uh, magic that I had to perform to find her. I We happened to get out that night to Santa Monica. I looked in the phone book on a whim, and sure enough, there she was. So uh, I caught her up and spoke to her, and she was uh, very nice and very sweet and, and, and quite candid about a number of things. And so I thought, well, you know, this is uh, this is pretty exciting. Uh, maybe we can, uh, you know, maybe we can go from here and talk to other people as well. And so, gee, I guess over the years, it's been well over a hundred, uh, maybe closer to 150 people that I've talked to. And um, and again, the, the stories they have frequently are stranger than fiction, you know, as, as to what happened, particularly in Hollywood in those days when the, there was so little protection for actors and. And uh, they really were at the mercy of the studios, particularly the ladies. Uh, you know, it was a really a very difficult uh, profession at that time for uh, for young women to get into uh, out in Hollywood. So uh, it's been very, very interesting and um, a lot of fun. Talk to me about uh, Hollywood Cauldron, 13 horror films from the genre's golden age. How did you decide those 13? And was it 13 just because 13 such a, a great unlucky number? Yeah, it was sort of a marketing thing. But uh, they were all films that were uh, very unusual. And at the time that that book was uh, was written, had not been particularly extensively covered. Mad Love being one of them. Uh, they, these were films that were sort of marginal. A lot of attention at that point had been paid. You know, to Dracula and Frankenstein and King Kong and the and the more iconic titles, but there were a lot of uh, unusual uh, pictures uh, that uh, had not been really focused on, and uh, so I decided to uh, to pursue some of those. And uh, they were again, they were very interesting. And some of the pictures, in fact, since that book has been written, I've gone back to and sort of revisited uh, to try to get additional information. And again, as I was saying earlier, it's really amazing. Um, you know, the deeper 
uh, you plumb into something, the more uh, more that comes up, the more that you find, the more uh, uh, kind of you know amazing stuff that you wouldn't think to really look for just suddenly appears. For example, some years ago, I did the audio commentaries for uh, Cat People and the Curse of the Cat People for RKO Studios back in 1942 and 1943 is when they were produced. I asked, I said, is there any chance that there's any kind of production information on these films? Because RKO has been out of business since 1956. Okay, so, you know, it's not like you can go to the studio and ask. Well, it turned out um, all of their material is, is extensively, uh, had been extensively saved. And I was able to see every single day's production report. I mean, every single, uh, almost everything you could pause, all the call sheets, all the, all the shooting reports, all the, all the budget concerns, all the, all the, the script revisions, all these sort of things, all these things had been meticulously saved. And, uh, you know, when you got into them, you saw, wow, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of putting together, uh, movies. Well, of course, today as well, but, but back then, when there were so many other things to have to worry about, like the censorship office and, 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 uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, really, you know, it was a, it was an incredible job. Uh, really a remarkable business. And, you know, frequently you think it's amazing any of these films ever really got produced, ever got completed. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because there were so many, uh, so many uphill challenges, uh, involved in, in, in getting them off the ground and so many unusual personalities associated with making them who were all, of course, under pressure at that time in the studio system. And, um, all these people who had to kind of stand up and, keep it together uh, under this incredible pressure that was put on them to produce a film. So, um, yeah, so the beat goes on, and there's always uh, interesting stuff to find, uh, like I say, and it just keeps uh, it just keeps turning up. When you are writing these books, do you ever get an opportunity to go back and do revisions to them? Are there second, third, fourth editions? Uh, on Hollywood Culture, and there's not been a new edition, but um, it's interesting that I'm starting on a new book now called The Very Witching Time of Night, uh, volume two, because I did a very witching time of night, uh, back, uh, a couple years ago. And in fact, one of the films I believe I'm going to revisit is Mad Love because of the amount of material that has, uh, that has shown up since Hollywood Cauldron, uh, was published. So, yeah, so th- it won't be actually a revised Hollywood Cauldron, but there'll be a revised Mad Love, uh, uh chapter, uh, coming up in this, uh, in, in this new book, The Very Witching Time of Night, uh, volume two. So, uh, so yeah, it's a lot, it really is. It's amazing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very evolving kind of process with this, even though the films were made many, many years ago. It's like any other kind of history. You know, you think you may have it right, but <laughs> all of a sudden something comes along and you say, Oh my heavens, I had no idea this happened. I had no idea this occurred. I had no idea that uh, this actor or this actress was dealing with this particular situation at the time they made the film or that the director was having problems uh, with, with this particular aspect of the shooting at the time that it was made. Uh, all this sort of thing, and um, the job is to try to put yourself as much as possible into a time machine to sort of go back to that era and uh, try to imagine being on the set, seeing these people at work, imagine them putting all this all this together, putting all this energy and passion and talent and everything into making these films. And uh, that's always the big challenge you have in your head. Try to try to sort of recreate the whole the whole filmmaking process and and the uh, the personalities of these people at play and at work. Well, it seems like Mad Love has a lot of big personalities coming to this. I mean, Carl Freund, Colin Clive, uh, Peter Lorre. This was, what, Freund's last film that he directed and Lorre's first American film? Absolutely, yes. And uh, Freund was a very... He was a very obstreperous character. Uh, he was very intimidating. He was first of all a very big man, a very, very, very big, heavy man. And he had been... Um, 
And of course, he was an absolutely brilliant cinematographer. Uh, you know, Metropolis, uh, Germany. And of course, when he came to America, he was a cinematographer of, uh, of Dracula and Murders in the Room Morgue. And then he eventually became the director of the film The Mummy. Uh, that starred Boris Karloff at Universal in 1932. But uh, one of the uh, people I interviewed years ago who talked extensively about Carl Freund was Zita Johan, who had been the leading lady in The Mummy. In her mind, he just was a complete raging sadist. Treated her terribly and worked her so hard she passed out. And and uh, briefly, a story she always loved telling was the fact that the film originally had these scenes that took place in her reincarnated lives, one of which she was a Christian martyr fed to lions. And uh, Carl Freund waited to the last day of shooting uh, to put her in the arena with the lions in case the lions overreacted. Uh, he'd have the rest of the film in the can. So she was very, uh, <laughs> he, he was apparently very difficult. Years later, people who worked with him, uh, you know, when he was, had gone back to cinematography, uh, they were very, uh, certainly praised his talent, but he could be very, very demanding and very difficult. And on the picture Mad Love, it would have been, that's right, as you said, it would have been his last film. Uh, that he actually directed, because his real love was the camera. His real love was the cinematography aspect. And on Mad Love, his real interest really was, again, the camera. I mean, of course, film was a visual medium, naturally, and, and the thing that most excited him was how everything was going to look. He was not particularly interested in directing actors, you know, particularly you know, sitting down and discussing approaches and that sort of thing. He figured they were actors, they knew what they were doing, and they didn't necessarily need his guidance, which is probably true to a certain extent. But at the same time, most actors like being directed. Uh, they like given, you know, they like to get, have the tone set and that sort of thing as to what they want to do and then what, what the director wants. And he wasn't really like that. So he was rather difficult. Now, Laurie loved that. Laurie loved the fact that Freud didn't direct him because that way Laurie could do pretty much what he wanted to do. Uh, you know, which and which in the film is really quite amazing to watch. Uh, so he he worked perfectly well without that. But some of the other people in the film were were not happy about the fact that Freud was not a really hands-on director with the actors. But of course, if you watch the film, it is visually you know terrific. And um, obviously, that particular aspect of Freud's talent, the the, the visuals, the the, the picture. Uh, telling the story in the pictures. Uh, at that, he really was, uh, he, he was brilliant. But yes, he went back to cinematography afterwards. He won the Academy Award for The Good Earth, uh, 1937 film, and of course later became the, uh, the C. Lou photographer for Lucille Ball on television, pioneering TV uh, cameraman. So, uh, so that was Freund. Laurie, of course, again, a, a, a brilliant actor. Uh, this was, as you mentioned, his first American film. Uh, he had been a sensation in the film M that Fritz Lang had directed in Germany. Uh, he played uh, a child murderer who kept children's shoes in a closet. Uh, and, and he loved telling the story that, you know, when he walked down the street in Berlin, you know, mobs would chase him because they recognized him from the movie. Uh, incredible performance, just I mean, timelessly uh, uh, incredible performance. He didn't made a number of films in Germany, uh, in England, and then he came uh, to America, and uh, he was at Columbia, and they eventually learned about the MGM to do Mad Love. It, you know, today it, it's it, it's just an amazing performance uh, to watch him in this in this picture. Uh, if the uh, if the listeners aren't too familiar with the plot, just very briefly. Uh, the film sort of has something to scare and disturb everybody <laughs> within it. Uh, you know, it's the story of a mad doctor who's Peter Lorre, who is uh, very madly in love with an actress who's the star of the uh, Grand Guignol Theater in Paris, and uh, whose husband is a concert pianist. And when the husband's hands are amputated after a train wreck, 
this mad doctor transplants new hands onto the patient's wrists, hands that used to be those of a knife murderer. And uh, lo and behold, shortly later, the pianist starts throwing knives with his new hands. So it's a really uh, pretty outlandish story, and it gets a really outlandish treatment uh, from uh, from Freund in the cast. And um, it, it's a powerhouse cast. I mean, in addition to Laurie, you have Colin Clive, as you mentioned, who played Dr. Frankenstein in the original Frankenstein, and then had just played uh, Dr. Frankenstein again in the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein. And uh, he plays Orlock, the pianist. And you have Francis Drake. Uh, who really was a, a beautiful uh, actress and a very, very fine actress. Uh, and she had sort of that uh, that sexy angel look that uh, some of the 1930s horror heroines had. Uh, and uh, she was a leading lady, Yvonne, and uh, spoke to her extensively, in fact, about the film. She was a, she was a lovely lady and a lot of fun to interview. And, um, and so she plays the lady who, um, for whom Dr. Gogol has this unrequited passion and who's uh, driving Dr. Gogol to madness and Hence the title "Mad Love," uh, which is which is what he certainly displays throughout the film. It was pretty much an overdose uh, at the time for for horror goers in 1935. It had a lot of censorship trouble. Uh, ended up playing a major part in England banning horror films uh, and Hollywood temporarily stopping shooting them. So uh, it was a kind of notorious movie uh, at the time uh, that it came out. And as originally scripted and shot, it was actually uh, even wilder than. Uh, <laughs> than what was released and what, what survives today. So, yeah, it's a it, it, pretty wicked film. Well, can you talk about that? Talk about some of these deleted scenes that we have yet to see from the film? Yes, uh, sure. One of the, the most interesting is the fact that, uh, uh, to, try to try to explain this uh, clearly, uh, there is a situation in the film in which, um, after Colin Clive, as the pianist, is in this train wreck and he loses his hands, Yvonne goes to the mad doctor, uh, to, 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 to a Dr. Gogol, and uh, begs him to try to save her husband's hands. And what happens is on the, on the train is this uh, knife murderer named Rollo, who is going to the guillotine and um, survives, the, uh, survives the train wreck. And he is guillotined. And um, what happened in the original script, in the original shooting, was that uh, <laughs> they brought his body into the lab, Rollo's body, into the lab after he had been guillotined, after his head had been decapitated, and refastened the head uh, to the body and got the blood running again. All right, They basically resuscitated him temporarily to get the blood running again with his head harnessed onto his body. Uh, at that point, the blood circulates, the blood goes back into the hands, uh, according to the rather dubious medical you know, a practice that was shown in the film. And, um, and then uh, Dr. Gogol severs the hands and puts the hands onto uh, Orlock, onto the pianist. And then presumably he takes, you know, the body of, uh, of, of the, 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 you know, uh, Gogol. Or, uh, Gogol takes the body of Rollo, the knife murderer, and, and uh, you know, he, uh, he, Rollo apparently dies and he discards of the body. But um, it, it's really a quite a spectacular, was from all reports, apparently a really quite spectacular mad lab scene of this, you know, this, this spot, this head being <laughs> reattached, uh, and then, you know, that, uh, going from there with the, with the um, amputation and with the hands being grafted on. This was all cut. Uh, almost the entire lab scene was cut. There's a little bit of it left in the film, nothing regarding the head being strapped back on or anything of that nature. Uh, 
so of course, at the end of the film, when uh, Dr. Gogol is trying to terrify Orlock into going crazy, he dresses up as Rollo, the knife murderer, and he gets into this outlandish disguise where it looks as if his head has been harnessed back onto his body, and it looks as if his hands are, you know, artificial hands made of metal. And he goes to um, to uh, Orlock, and he tries to basically scare him into hysteria and into insanity by saying that he's back from the dead. Well, of course, that that part is still in the film, but it it and it's still very very effective. But I think it would have been more effective if that part had been retained, where you actually saw the the, the head being reattached. You know, it's fascinating the fact that the censors, which who were very very uh, you know uh, vigilant in those days with the production code apparently did not kick up a fuss about that scene. That MGM cut that scene is is no real clear reason why, except other than I think they just figured it was too much. It was, you know, it was already already an overdose in a movie that wasn't overdose. So they, they but they cut the studio cut that scene themselves. And um the censors didn't really for some reason object. I guess it was done it was done tastefully enough and in, in enough of a subtle way that the censors didn't get all uh, crazy about it. But something the censors did object to that originally was scripted for the film, it might not have been filmed this way, but in the film, um, Dr. Golgol goes to the Grand Guignol Theater and he buys a wax statue of Yvonne that he takes back to, uh, to his home and keeps and, uh, for whatever, you know, kinky purposes that he has it there. And in the original script, they were a little bit more, uh, suggestive about that wax statue. In fact, there was a scene where it showed him spraying perfume on it. And a censor said, no, 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 that's a no, no, you're not going to do that. You know, that's, <laughs> that's pushing it a little bit too far. So that they did not, that you don't see in the film. You see the wax statue and he has it in his home, but you don't see him getting cozy with it. You don't see him, you know, squirting perfume on it or anything like that. But, um, that's the, you know, if, if, if somebody could find, uh, those, those, uh, missing scenes, it would really be a quite a major, you know, discovery. Uh, it, it, it's a big cut in the film. The, film was previewed at about 83 minutes, I believe, and it was cut to about 67. So we're talking about 16 minutes of footage. In addition to the lab scene, there was a little subplot with, uh, with thieves, uh, a, man, a male and a female thief, uh, thieves who were working in, uh, in Paris at the time who were completely cut out of the film. But the big thing was that horror centerpiece with the lab. That was the thing that really uh, you know, it was going to be the big highlight of the film, and it's, it, it, uh, it's not there. So it's a little hard to judge the film as to what the impact might have been originally because you're looking at it without its big centerpiece. We were talking about how this is the last film that um, Freund directed. Uh, this was also one of the last films that Colin Clive made. Can you talk about kind of his short, sad end? It's interesting um, on a couple of levels regarding Clive. First of all, he really hated the film. Uh, he... <laughs> He he really despised this movie. Uh, in fact, he gave an interview uh, when it was over, and the title, title of the interview was "I Hate Horror Films." All right, and he just went on and on with this British reporter about how much he hated uh, the, the Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and particularly Mad Love. And he particularly hated Mad Love because he actually claimed he became physically ill at the sight of his hands, uh, the made-up hands that uh, he uses in the film. They 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 put wax and all kinds of of, of makeup and drew in veins and this sort of thing on his hands to make them look as if they were somebody else's hands and he had to walk around like this all day with these with these uh, you know, grotesque hands and um, he hated the makeup process he hated wearing the hands he hated looking at the hands 
uh, I imagine it made it very difficult for him to, you know, do, do, do normal, you know, daily functions with these artificial hands on as well. And, um, I mean, he was very outspoken. He said, you know, there were just days he wished he could have gone, as he put it, washed away the whole ghoulish mess and just left the studio. I mean, he was, he was not at all happy with the film and very, very disturbed about the hands. An irony about Con Clive is the fact that, um, he had been, his early life had been in the military in, um, in England, he had gone to Sandhurst, which is the, well, the Royal Military Academy, and he had wanted to become a Bengal lancer. Uh, he wanted to, his mil- uh, family had been in the military, and he wanted to become a Bengal lancer and wanted to be in the in the cavalry in uh, in India. Early in his career at Sandhurst, there was a rather spectacular horse fall, and he broke both his knees. Then and there, disqualifying for any further medical service, and uh, he had drifted. Uh, rather quickly into becoming an actor, but he apparently could not keep away from from a horseback riding. It was shortly after Frankenstein was released, in fact, there was a report that he was uh, in the countryside in England and uh, tried to ride a horse over a high gate, and the horse fell, and he was barely hurt again. At any rate, shortly before, not too long after Made Love was completed, and shortly before Clive died, uh, in 1937, apparently he received very grim news that this, uh, the, this bad uh, leg he had uh, had worsened to the point they were going to have to amputate it, uh, which is again sort of reminiscent of his role in Made Love, where they had to amputate it, you know, the character's hands. So, uh, and uh, again, uh, Clive was a very, uh, very, very nervous, highly strung, uh, unhappy man, and had serious alcohol problem, and uh, very sad. Apparently, this was just one of a number of. Um, Things, the little um, major demons that uh, that plagued him uh, as uh, as his life went on, and near the end of his life, and apparently it was one of the things that pushed him over the brink, and then he died in 1937. So he died only just about about a um, little over two years uh, after completing Mad Love, and he was only 37 years old. He always played crazy so well. Yes, he did. Uh, he had, I think he had a lot to uh, a lot to tap into. He was unfortunately he was a, again he was a, he was a very very unhappy man and and uh, extremely hypertense. And I think that what you uh, you know what you saw on screen was uh, pretty much what you would have seen if you had met him. He was uh, you know I mean, he could I mean, he could be very charming and very funny and very witty and all those sort of things as well. And uh, he had a nice range as an actor. I mean, every once in a while he got to play something that was a little bit different. But he certainly made his mark in Hollywood in these kind of hypertense roles. And um, I think he had a lot, a lot of things to tap into to make those things realistic. And one thing I didn't realize until I was reading your book was that this is uh, almost a um, – I, I don't want to say spiritual sequel because there's a character who is the same from one movie to another or could be the, the same, which is the character of Rollo, the knife thrower, uh, having appeared before in Freaks. Yes, it's very interesting that the, the, the final script was done by a man named John Balderston who was a, had a remarkable resume in Hollywood. He had, uh, his name appears on the, on, on the credits for Dracula and Frankenstein and The Mummy, and, and uh, he, he, he was – you know, he really was the the, the number one uh, screenwriter for horror in, in Hollywood in those days, and uh, he had a very good memory of um, of the different things. and And uh, he had not worked on Freaks, but he remembered uh, this character of of Rollo from Freaks, uh, who in the film is is presented as a as a uh, you know as one of the one of the characters in the circus. And so it, you could extend easily the fact that this is the same character who was in Freaks as the character who is now heading to the guillotine in Mad Love. 
Uh, and um, there are a number of uh, little in-jokes like that throughout the film that um, that Baudiston uh, puts in. Uh, there, there's the famous scene in The Mummy where the mummy uh, uh, wakes up and goes walking off into the night, and the archaeologist says he went for a little walk, and uh, that line appears uh, at one point in Mad Love. And um, originally, before it was cut, in fact, they even used the same curtain uh, uh, curtain raising speech they used in Frankenstein about um, you know that this may thrill you, it may shock you, it may even horrify you. Baudiston put that into um, the script for Mad Love. Again, it was cut before the film was released. So yeah, he was uh, he, he had a lot of fun working on that uh, that script. And in fact, he not only had fun working on it, he was working on it during most of the shooting. Uh, you know, the film was shooting for several weeks at, uh, you know, at the time, uh, he was pretty much working day to day, coming up with new pages and new dialogue and this sort of thing. So it was a, it was a kind of, and in some ways kind of an impromptu film, uh, the way it was being put together. Uh, they were kind of, to a certain extent, they were kind of winging it, um, you know, trying to make it work. Uh, it, it's very interesting. It was an MGM film and MGM horror films were always kind of very interesting train wrecks. You know, they were, <laughs> MGM was the, the major studio in those days. And, uh, um, you know, for example, in 1932, all the other studios were almost going bankrupt, and MGM made a profit of over $8 million. And, you know, they just were absolutely number one in every way, and they wanted to be number one in horror films as well. But it seems every every horror film they, they made had some kind of uh, disaster associated with it. For example, you know, Freaks, which came out in 1932, which, of course, uh, Todd Browning directed and used actual... Uh, circus sideshow people, and it was a you know, complete disaster, and uh, lost like one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and it was a big embarrassment for the studio, you know. And, and but they kept trying, you know. They made the Mask of Fu Manchu uh, with Boris Karloff, and uh, that film actually got in trouble uh, forty years later, uh, nineteen seventy-two. Uh, because the Japanese Asian League came out and said that it was a very, you know, it was it was a racist picture that uh, Fu Manchu was, as they put it, an evil lisping homosexual with five inch fingernails, and and Myrna Loyes's daughter was a sadistic nymphomaniac, and they demanded MGM you know, shelf the film, and instead of MGM cut it, and then they've restored it for for DVD. Uh, that was a moderate hit. Mark of the Vampire came out and had uh, turned out to have a trick ending that Beta Lugosi and his daughter weren't really vampires. They were actors pretending to be vampires. So they kept trying to make a horror film that would really be a hit. And Mad Love was, uh, the, you know, their, their big stab at trying to really come up with something that was really going to, uh, really, really going to score for them. But it didn't. Uh, it was, uh, it, it got a very interesting review from Time Magazine. Time said this is one of the most completely horrible stories of the year. Uh, was uh, how they how they phrased it, and it was just was too much. And uh, the film lost uh, close to forty thousand uh, dollars when it came out uh, because it just was it was it just was too too much uh, for um, for audiences in England. In fact, uh, they they made extensive over two dozen cuts in the film. You know, uh, they were really appalled over there at the, the, the picture. And shortly after that, they uh, actually banned horror films in. Uh, in England for uh, several years, uh, so you know it 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 kind of left a, a path of destruction uh, at the time. There <laughs> there was a theater in Long Island. I wrote this down uh, that um, sent a, a report to Motion Picture Herald, which used to which used to uh, report the the reactions of the different exhibitors to films that were shown. And this man wrote, "Quote: He said the producers must have been mad to even attempt such a picture as this." This is certainly a black eye for MGM. 
Mad Love is a picture that makes a manager want to hide from view when the cash customers leave the theater. This is the type of picture that brought about censorship. It got a lot of people riled up. It was, <laughs> and uh, you know, I imagine that to a certain extent, the people who made it enjoyed the fact that uh, that it got people riled up because you know that's what horror films are supposed to do. That they're supposed to scare people and they're supposed to they're supposed to haunt people and they're supposed to get under your skin. This one maybe just did too good a job at it. Was this part of the packages that would show on UHF channels, or how was it uh, handled afterwards? That's a very good question. I think, from what I've discovered recently, that it, there was a, quite a delay between the time that most of the MGM films uh, came on television, which was starting in the late 1950s, starting around 1956. Uh, you would see films like Mark of the Vampire show up and, and, um, and Master Fu Manchu, and these pictures began to play when MGM leased its films to television. May It Love, I think, really was, I think MGM considered it sort of an embarrassment, not just because it lost money, but because it was excessive, and it was, you know, it, it got them some bad press, and and then uh, it did poorly overseas. Uh, several uh, countries actually rejected it, Hungary, Finland, Austria, Palestine. Uh, they all rejected the film, wouldn't even show it. It was almost something they wished that they could put it away and nobody, you know, forget any, that they ever made it. But I think it began circulating on television, I believe, in maybe the early or mid-1960s, which was, again, about seven or eight years after most of the MGM films uh, had been released. It sort of, you know, eked its way out. And um, it got a very interesting boost in attention uh, then in the early 1970s because... Um, Pauline Kael wrote the book about uh, Susan Cain, and it was not very flattering to Orson Welles, to say the least. And one of the things that was uh, the accusation that this book made was that Welles might have watched the picture Mad Love, on which the cinematographer were, was a, one of the cinematographers was Greg Toland, who was his, was Welles' cinematographer on Citizen Kane. And that uh, what happened was that uh, he... Uh, you know, copied the look of the film, that he copied this kind of exotic uh, look that Mad Love has to uh, create the exotic and unusual and very striking look that Citizen Kane has. And so people started looking at Mad Love, uh, at least, you know, film schools and, and uh, film fans and that sort of thing, began looking at Mad Love again just to sort of for that reason, to see if there, you know, see if, if there was anything to that argument. And, and maybe, I mean, there's a, there's a cockatoo in both films and, you know, things like that, but it's a little far-fetched to say that Wells, you know, really uh, completely imitated uh, the, that film. He probably got some ideas from Greg Toland about what to put in Citizen Kane was told and remembered some of the unusual things they used in Mad Love. But I think that did a lot to bring the film back into, um, you know, into focus. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very entertaining film. I mean, the whole, again, the whole look of it. So I think that once it started to get circulated and people started to see what was there and, and particularly Lurie's performance and, and the stylistics of the film, uh, they thought, wow, this is really great. This is, this is certainly a different type of golden age horror film and certainly a, uh, it, it certainly holds the interest, and, um, it, and this is this is pretty wild stuff. So it, it became sort of a, you know it became a classic of its own after quite a few years of suppression. Can you talk to me a little bit about your new book, uh, Laird Krieger: A Hollywood Tragedy? Laird Krieger was a fascinating actor. Uh, he was um, he, he stood six foot three. When he became famous in Hollywood, he weighed uh, well over three hundred pounds. He was a giant. And uh, he had had a very unusual life up to that point because he desperately wanted to be an actor. And because of his enormous size, 
uh, it, it seemed impossible. You know, he just was, he just was, you know, there were very, very few roles which he could play. And what eventually happened with Larry Krigar was that he went to Hollywood as a very young man. He was living in a parked car trying to get work. And eventually he heard about this play that had been done on Broadway, Oscar Wilde, that steward Robert, Mar- Robert Morley. And, uh, Krigar realized this was going to be, you know, this was going to be a perfect role for him. It was, it would be absolutely tailor-made role for him, Oscar Wilde. And he managed, despite the fact that he was basically almost a street person, he managed to uh, find a producer. He managed to uh, get a major production mounted in Hollywood. He starred as Oscar Wilde, and he was absolutely tremendous. He got a film contract uh, at 20th Century Fox. He uh, became a sensation very quickly in in in, uh, in the films he made, particularly, unusually, as... Um, a sex pervert. And of course, the amazing thing about that is that in those days, uh, in the 40s, there really weren't many roles of that nature being done in films. I mean, because of censorship, because of the whole nature of Hollywood at the time, you know, you didn't have, it wasn't like today where you would have uh, those kind of a role of that kind of extremity being played. But Krigar had this great genius, this, this marvelous flair for being able to bring out these kind of, uh, you know, these kind of unusual characters, like as he played and I wake up screaming. I uh, played the psychopathic detective and ultimately uh, Jack the Ripper in The Lodger. The problem was that eventually uh, he became unhappy uh, about possible typecasting. He had a lot of personal uh, problems uh, that compounded all this. And um, eventually uh, he died very young. He died in late 1944 and he was only 31 years old. Uh, he died of the effects of, uh, of, a, of a brutal diet. And... Um, uh, he, he was a, an amazing actor, many years ahead of his time, uh, in what he was able to do, and had really a very, uh, uh he's behind a, a very, very impressive uh, body of work. He really is an amazing actor to watch, and, um, it was a lot of fun to research the book. Uh, one of the things, uh, briefly that was very interesting about it was that one of the things he did when he became successful in Hollywood was he wanted to, uh, really treat his family. Uh, because, you know, he had been sort of the black sheep of the family all these years, wanting to be an actor. And one of the things he did was he sent back to uh, to the East for his niece to come out and live with him in Beverly Hills uh, because her mother was having some difficulties. And he said, let me let, let her come out, you know, with me for the summer. And the niece came out and stayed with him. She was only about seven or eight years old at the time. She came out and stayed with him for a year and a half. And uh, fortunately, I was able to find uh, Laird's niece and talk to her and get some wonderful stories about him. Uh, and I got to her, uh, sadly, I got to her very shortly before she became ill and passed away. Uh, so at least, you know, her, uh, her stories and memories of him are going to be in the book. So it's a very, it's, it's really, it's a, a really uh, a, a very dramatic story. A very interesting look at Hollywood at the time. Uh, that he was working there because of the fact that he was uh, homosexual and uh, was in a situation, therefore, in Hollywood at the time where uh, this was a rather difficult um, uh, situation in which to find himself and how he coped with it and how he um, dealt with it and how it eventually, um, you know, caused difficulty for him. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a story on a lot of different levels that uh, that is, is, I think, going to be very effective. It should be out uh, around Thanksgiving time this year, and, uh, you know, I have high hopes for it. I hope, it's, I hope a lot of people are going to enjoy it. It seems like, looking at your bibliography, it seems like you're not the kind of person to just stand still. So I'm sure you're already working on the next one. 
Well, I'm working on yeah, I'm working on two novels which are Hollywood related as well. So hopefully those will uh, those will percolate and happen. Um, no, it really is. Once this once this sort of thing bites you and you get the passion for doing it, it really doesn't let up. I really thought the number of times over the years, and again, I've been doing this close to 40 years. I thought you know I'd finish a book and say, well, okay, you said what you've had to say and you've written what you've had to write, and and now you can you know you, that's it. And um, it, you know before. Any time goes by, I'm thinking, oh no, I got to get into this project. I have to get into that project, or I have to do some research on this. And and um, it's always fun. It's 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 a, it, it really is a blast. And I I feel like I've been very very fortunate to get into the field because again, there's been so many discoveries and so many things waiting to be found. And and uh, you know, like I said earlier, the beat goes on; it doesn't stop. And um, and so it's still a real kick. It's just as fun now as it was. Uh, uh, years ago, in some ways more so because, you know, the, there's a bigger network out there now of people to be of assistance and, and, um, uh, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Really enjoy it. After Laurie had done The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Hitchcock first version of it, I should say, what was the decision process insofar as moving from – because did he live in England or did he just stay there for a little bit and then emigrate? Yeah, he was was in Paris and he received the invitation to come to England to work with Hitchcock and uh, he had been living in uh, in near poverty in Paris with a bunch of other emigres, including Billy Wilder and – Franz Waxman. Anyway, he uh, he came over and to make the music too much, and uh, there was an agent from Columbia who uh, I think he sat in on a dinner with um, with with Hitchcock and Laurie, and uh, tabled Harry Cohn at uh, Columbia, who was really interested in collecting European actors, uh, kind of like collecting art. I mean, all Hollywood was, not just Cohen. All Hollywood was interested in getting these classic actors cheaply. Uh, he sent uh, a contract to Laurie um, to come over, um, just to, to come to come to Hollywood. So it, it's interesting to me. Um, it, it's kind of a case of art imitating life. But there's a, in an early scene in The Face Behind the Mask, which was released in 1940, uh, a young immigrant played by Laurie uh, is asked if he can wash dishes. And, and he boyishly bubbles over with enthusiasm and says, in America, I can do anything. Now, Laurie was, was less naive than Janos Sabo, the character in the movie, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, really unrealistic high expectations for his own new world adventure. I mean, up until now, success had demanded repetition, uh, or I should say, or so he claimed. Because after Anne Laurie said he was inundated both in Germany and from the United States with offers to play nothing but homicidal maniacs. But you know, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I think we can chalk up some of that to his eagerness to burn bridges. I mean, actually, in four, in four of the six films that followed M, he played lighter, even comedic roles. I mean, nonetheless, he wanted to put the past behind him and start over, which, which mainly meant stepping out from the shadow of M. But uh, shortly after arriving here in 1934, 
he stated that he'd rather do nothing, appear in no films rather than be typed. Uh, interesting to me is that, in fact, in almost every interview he gave in 1934, 35, 36, he referenced typecasting. I mean, it was clearly something that sat very heavily on his shoulder. So here he was in Hollywood. Um, he put his trust in kind of a benign fate. From his earliest days in the cinema, Laurie seemed to know, or so he said, that, that Hollywood was his final destination, the next logical step. In fact, he said, if it weren't for, and he said this um, both, I think, in, well, I'm not sure he said it in Germany, but he certainly said it in England. He said if it weren't for M, he would have been in, uh, arrived in Hollywood years earlier, which, honestly, I um, dislocation, exile, what Brett called changing countries more often than shoes. Uh, Laurie found that inconvenient, but he, he seemed, she seemed to have full faith that his final boarding pass was stamped Los Angeles. It still surprises me to think of him putting his trust in a sort of, you know, like I said, benign fate. This kind of swept forward. But, of course, he bridged Germany and America with England. Uh, but once he was here, he felt this was the ultimate destination. Hollywood welcomed the lorries. For Laurie, there was the problem of the community falling into camps. Those who burned bridges and forced uh, head, and those that thought of America as um, temporary, uh, just going to be here briefly, it's just a stopover, and they're going to go back to Europe. Um, the one group resisted yours to assimilate. They, they didn't like America. They were clannish, clickish. They uh, found the landscape hostile, beautiful, corrupt. And they felt really, really isolated. Laurie um, had broken with the past. America, he felt, owed, owed him nothing but a chance to start over. Um, he felt his future was here. Hollywood movie-making machine, that it was natural, that it was in Europe. There was nothing to equal it anywhere. But, you know, the bottom line is the first time he was on the inside looking out. Because in, in Germany, um, Paris, and even to some extent, it, that the reverse. Um, he fell in love with the California lifestyle. Uh, when pictures of him playing badminton, uh, ping pong, just enjoying the outdoors, he talked a lot about his flowers. You know, some emigres were encouraged to to participate, like you know, community projects and classes in American history, practice speaking English. Uh, I mean, to, to assimilate, uh, Lori never needed that step up because he just jumped in with both feet. And I might have said earlier that Billy Wilder uh, said that he and Peter were really into Americana, which for them meant professional wrestling. In fact, uh, at, at one of the 20th Fox press notices, something about the, that uh, Laurie was a second for Man Mountain Dean. Of course, Man Mountain Dean got in trouble and the ring Laurie would take over, which of course is ludic ludicrous, but it's, it's still funny. It, it shows the extent to which Laurie was really enjoying uh, the popular American lifestyle. I mean, he just immersed himself, particularly in the vernacular. I mean, he always talked slang, hip talk. Uh, it was something he hung up, you know, right-o, daddy-o, and stuff like that. I mean, he hung on to that the rest of his life. And it particularly shows that, you know, that European identity, it, it faded away so quickly. The one thing that kind of bothered him is he no, he no longer knew where he stood with his old, some of his fellow emigres. I mean, some of them really viewed as commercially stepping up and artistically stepping down, in a word, selling out. But I think Laurie recognized this as what it was, it's basically sour grapes. And once he got here, he was really anxious to begin work. Well, for one reason, he still owed money to Carl Krauss, 
who was a very famous Austrian author, journalist, playwright, and, and, and many other things. But Laurie had, had, um, actually had appeared in several of his works, both on stage and radio. But before leaving Europe, he finagled a loan of 3,000 shillings with the idea that he would repay the, that sum in several weeks after he had left, uh, left Germany for, for Paris. And even and uh, even put up his life insurance policy as, uh, as collateral or security or whatever. And when he was in Paris, the entire sum came due, which was a huge problem because the only work he was able to score there was a very small part in a film called De Hon and Ba, from top to bottom, which you can you can see today. It's available, but uh, so that debt was still hanging over uh, Peter and Celia's heads when they arrived here. I mean, everything it seemed hung on his success. In, in America, which meant it also hung on his success in his first film, he needed to make a big splash, which, of course, was Mad Love. Um, he had signed a 20-week contract with Columbia when he was still in, in, in London that said he would get paid $500 per week. Actually, it turned out that that uh, total amount was spread out over 26 weeks, not 20 weeks. So he was only making $380 a week. And what with his agent, insurance, uh, supposedly money sent to family and friends in Europe, he only took home $160 a week, which was not enough to discharge that old debt. So he was idle for nine months, during which time Columbia was trying to find a suitable project for him. And it was really frustrating because he was basically going broke. But he tried to get things going on his own with his old Casper Hauser project, which is something he had, had worked on in, in Germany. Um, he also voiced interest in the Good Soldiers fight. Uh, those ideas went nowhere. Um, Columbia suggested that he might they might want to sl- uh, put slot into a Jack Holt picture, and he wiggled out of that one. But uh, he was just so frustrated about the studio's endless search for a suitable role by their standards. He he finally took matters in hand, and um, he really liked Dostoevsky. And here you get one of his favorite and most often told stories. Um, uh, I heard it. It came down to me from a number of sources. But he told it to John Houston, who laughingly actually repeated it to me in the in the 70s, some 40 years later. But in a nutshell, uh, Laurie said he realized that Harry Cohn, uh, you know, was no way he could strong arm him into reading the you know, heavy novel. So he, a secretary prepared a two-page synopsis of the book, the novel. Um, and reportedly, I mean, Laurie always liked to denigrate the um, the, the, the echelon, the you know, the hierarchy at the, at the top of the of the, uh, the studio zone. So he said, um, Cohen explained his decision to get a publisher would make a great movie. And, and Laurie told us so often it get kind of out through its own credibility, but he just wanted to make the front office look bad. And uh, he, he did the same thing at Warner Brothers too, and uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, he, he he hated front office because they he kind of blamed them for not uh, letting him out of the cage, so to speak, and to uh, cast him against type. Uh, nobody wanted to do that. Although actually, Warner Brothers did that in Three Strangers and a little bit in, in the verdict, and he was very grateful. But uh, so uh, Tone wanted to loan Laurie to MGM for Mad Love. Um, apparently, Laurie had read The Art of the Deal. So he countered with, I'll do Mad Love if you make Crime and Punishment and give me Joseph von Sternberg to direct. So that's how he agreed to do Mad Love, although I'm not sure how he could have wiggled out of it any other way. But um, he, he did have reservations about doing what had the hallmarks of horror, 
um, but they really ran second to the need for exposure. He needed to get his name out. He needed to make a big splash. Vasilya wrote, um, uh, Yulovsky, Peter's wife, wrote Carl Krause's attorney that, um, I'm going to quote this, uh, Mad Love, it, it, Mad Love was a very big work on which everything depends. Uh, of course, she was talking about boosting his earning capacity. Otherwise, Laurie actually didn't seem all that interested in Mad Love. Um, he, he credited the cinematography, but he admitted he did it mostly because he was just tired of being idle. Now, after Mad Love, Laurie overnight uh, was labeled by the in the trade papers, you know, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, etc. cetera. Uh, and, and Laurie kept really good um, clipping service. I mean, you did pay for a clipping service in those days, and they just cut out anything in the trades for you. And Laurie had, you know, buckets of these uh, scrapbooks with, uh, with, with trade notices um, about his career and where it was going, which was very helpful to me because uh, his, his daughter shared those with me. But you, so you find phrases like, Laurie uh, labeled as one of the horror boys, a one-man chamber of horrors, a tight-sized Boris Karloff. These are all quotes. And, and, and those, those stung a little bit because, um, you know, like I say, he, he, they'd be cast against type. But in 1963, Laurie said, and I'll quote, how this image always remains, I don't know, but it does remain. I have never played a single horror picture as far as I can remember. I somehow got into that category, but it's actually psychological terror I used to play or do play. Laurie claimed that he disliked horror films. He thought the average horror film you know, in his day uh, was silly, obvious, appealed to sadistic emotions, glor- uh, he said glorified depravity in his own words. Uh, and he always labeled himself a psychological actor, meaning he got his effects uh, from within intuitively. Uh, he said his performance was re- he said his performances were realistic and intellectual, not dependent on cosmetics and disfigurements and makeup and all that sort of thing. But uh, in the realm of, of what he called psychological terror or horror, he loved Edgar Allan Poe also. The Telltale Heart being one of his favorite stories, which there again he called it psychological horror, not just horror. You said that he was talking about uh, the whole idea of not relying on the makeup and uh, the effects and those things. But Bad Love is so much about the makeup and the effects. And, and I, I mean, this isn't necessarily makeup, but the shaving of the head. I mean, I've seen those pictures of him getting his head shaved. He doesn't look very happy about that. No. And um, he actually went to Francis Drake and wanted to show him that shaved head because he was sensitive about frightening her. Um, he didn't, I, I, yeah, he was not big on that, but he wanted to base, I think it was a quote somewhere about the fact that the character thought he wanted, the filmmakers wanted the audience to know that here was a character who did not think about his looks, that anything about physical appearance did not concern him. So he even removed his hair. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I would consider that makeup. Um, it, it was kind of, um. Yeah, well, it was certainly wasn't Laurie's decision. And actually, you know, I have a copy of the original story, and I read it so long ago. I'm wondering now if the character in the story had a shaved head. But I know that Laurie, at some point, there was a quote about him saying that they wanted to present the character. He wanted no physical affectations. Basically, he was a man who just thought about his science and his work. Um, removing his hair maybe kept him more focused on what he was doing rather than his physical appearance. 
though clearly he wanted to be attracted to the Francis Drake character. But in real life, it was it was funny because he actually went to her and wanted to show her what he looked like before the first scene. I mean, Laurie loved women. Uh, one of his characters uh, on the motos, <laughs> he was always on the make for this for this lady or that lady, or always trying to. You know, he would say, "Do you think you could get used to my body?" Now he was kidding. He was kidding, but that was his. That was kind of this funny come on line to everybody. And uh, so he was. He was very self conscious about his appearance. And um, so here he was playing a character who was not self conscious about his appearance, and uh, that sat not too well with him. Uh, so he went to Francis Drake and said, "Hey, you know, here's what I look like. I hope it doesn't frighten you." So he and his wife knew that so much hinged upon the success of this film. And ultimately, it was not successful. No, but of course, what he had in the wings was Secret Agent. Well, excuse me, it's Crime and Punishment and then Secret Agent, because Laurie said, you know, I really wasn't into Mad Love because I was already thinking ahead to Crime and Punishment. I was sitting in with Von Sternberg working on the script. This was a, a project that was far more interesting and appealing to me. Um, I just had to get Mad Love behind me so I could move forward with something I really wanted to do. So even though Mad Love, he didn't know at the time Mad Love would not be successful, but actually he was looking forward immediately. Like, we need to get this over with. I want to do crime and punishment. This is my big chance to get my foot in the door in Hollywood in a you know, a classic you know, a movie presentation. And then behind that, he had Secret Agent. He was going back to work with Hitchcock. So he had back-to-back three starring roles, three films that depended on him. And that that, that was a problem also because um, in Europe, uh, he'd had episodes of Coffee on Blood. Uh, and for the doctors there, it was believed that he was suffering from pulmonary tuberculosis. Uh, once in this country, uh, the medical community reevaluated him and determined that no, he suffered from, uh, if I pronounced this cor- correctly, bronchiectasis, stasis, uh, an, infection, an infection of the large bronchi, and which was often caused by severe respiratory infections in childhood. But um, that's how he explained that the back-to-back filming of Mad Love, Crime and Punishment, and Secret Agent had really taken a toll on his already fragile health, and he kind of rationalized that that exactly was why it, 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 he fell back on morphine. He was just, he saw, I mean, Stylovsky told me that he was just utterly, utterly exhausted these back-to-back films. He was already in a weakened condition from various medical problems, including the one I just mentioned. And he, to keep going, he, he fell back on morphine. Ultimately, what was the next success for him? Because if memory serves, Crime and Punishment didn't do much for him either. No, it didn't. I mean, he got, he got good reviews, but the film didn't. Um, there was a French version that came out at the same time that actually did better critically. But no, he still had not jump-started his career with those first two movies, nor nor did he with Secret Agent, which was a British production, of course. And he was not, he didn't, he wasn't starring. He was, he was down the bill of ways. So when he came back, after uh, uh, Secret Agent, he... Well, at that time, um, Daryl Zanuck came forward and said, okay, we want to sign you. Um, I think he did the first crack up, which was an individual assignment because uh, he signed the major contracts with Fox after crack up. Crack up wasn't part of it. That was an individual deal. But there again, Zanuck was promising the same thing. Everyone promised him a variety of roles. It was like, you're not, you're not appreciated. You're not getting the work we think you can do. We're going to cast you in a variety of roles. 
and and they did. I mean, they did do Crack Up, which he plays a dual role, um, where he plays the uh, you know, mascot of an airship factor, and he's kind of a bit addled. And then he's also plays the other half of that character. Of course, is a, is a sinister spy. Um, I think he enjoyed playing those two against the, the middle. But uh, then, of course, he has Nancy Steele is missing, which is still a villain. And then, but he did do that wonderful unknown film that just you just don't see. It's called "I'll Give a Million, which he plays a tramp. It's a completely comedic role, and he is delightful in it, and it is so unseen. And the um, there's a company that has kind of resurrected some of these old Fox films and re-released them. But that's the one they did. Nancy Steele is missing. They've done Crack Up, Lancer Spy, but they did not do. They have not done "I'll Give a Million, which just made too small a splash in a big pool, but it would kind of had a larger exposure then and now. It might have reoriented uh, his his image in Hollywood. But of course, soon after that, he fell into the moto rut. And, um, you know, he thought of it as a departure immediately and then later hated doing them because once again, it was the typecasting rut. He did eight of them and he wasn't paid very well doing them either. So he really didn't get, and then after that, he freelanced and he was working RKO and Universal and Republic and just shuffling around from back lot to back lot in smaller and smaller roles, of course, until John Huston discovered him for the Maltese Falcon. Then that is when he really got his foot in the door. That's when he climbed the ladder, Maltese Falcon, and of course followed shortly after. But Maltese Falcon did not get him a contract with with Warner Brothers immediately. That again, like Crack Up, was an individual film. It was only after Casablanca how Wallace said, we think we can use this guy. So, But that's really when his, his career took off. So it took him pretty much seven years before he really made that splash with Maltese Falcon when absolutely. he came to the U.S. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, he'd been in three or two starring roles that just really didn't score. And then uh, a smaller role, a secret agent, which was not one of Hitchcock's bigger films either. And after that, it was um, bits and pieces and back lots and small roles. Mr. District Attorney and... Um, I don't know. I can't even think. I can't even think of some of the other ones, but they 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 weren't very big. In 1936, Graham Greene wrote an article, "The Genius of Peter Lorre." Was that fairly typical for Greene to write this lavishing praise on an actor like that? Because this seems very unusual to me. You know, I don't know because I haven't read. I can't. Nothing else that he read comes to mind. But in all the stuff I've read from that period, you know, critiques, um, essays reviews, that one is really over the top, very much so. But, you know, even however much Green liked Laurie, thought him unique, it still didn't, it didn't sell more tickets at the box office. I mean, Hollywood was pretty inundated with horror films during these years. And, of course, it was odd to anyone that Metro kind of waded into that genre because I think of the horror films as Universal, uh, the Universal Studio, but um, they did, and it didn't go all that well for them. Did he ever manage to pay off that debt? No. No, he never did. No. In fact, I, I ran across uh, quite a few letters back and forth from Krauss's attorney, threatening letters from Krauss's attorney, uh, putting pressure, more and more pressure on them. And it was really bothering Celia because Celia uh, managed 
all, all of Lori's affairs. I mean, she was secretary, uh, financial manager, mother. I mean, she was everything to him. She filled so many roles. And she, she, the, the pressure was taking a toll on her. These letters, these threatening letters from his attorney. But no, they never discharged anything. They had no money. He was making so little money during those years. He lived in a very nice house, rented on Santa Monica, Adelaide Drive. But uh, no, no, he never discharged. He really never discharged any debt in his entire life. I mean, he went bank. He went bankrupt in 1949, and uh, if you look at all the, the bankruptcy records, the list of creditors is just a mile long. It lists every creditor and how much he owed. I mean, Laurie really had no regard for money or financial solvency uh, his entire life. He was always kind of behind. He'd borrow money from Bogart, borrow money here and there, and they they, they thought so highly of him that they just never really cared about being paid back. I know that was the case with Bogart. And Laurie loved to borrow money. He'd, he'd always borrow money, and then he'd give it away in tips. He was a great, great tipper, but he'd borrow money to do it. One of the classic stories in San Francisco later is he heard about the elevator man, or a bellboy, I, I can't recall, and um, the man had was in pretty dire financial straits because his wife had needed surgery. And Laurie borrowed money. I keep thinking it was from Burl Ives. And... Uh, simply walked into the elevator and uh, stuck a roll of $100 bills into the guy's uh, guy's shirt, his pocket. But, but it was never out of his own pocket to do that because he always spent more than he made. And he never made that much. Even at Warner Brothers, he never made that much money. I know that you talked to a lot of people for The Lost One. And I'm curious, I, I saw quotes from Key Luke in the book. Did you get to talk to Mr. Luke? I corresponded with him. I find it so great that here's this movie from 1935 with a major Asian character who isn't a major Asian with a capital A character. Like they're not focusing in on his difference, that he's just there and doing his job, mm-hmm. as opposed to when they would do the horrible thing of making Peter Lorre play a Japanese person. <laughs> yeah, well, Norman Foster, um, who directed Six of the Eight, um, uh, motos and I did interview him. Um, he was really wanting to climb the ladder himself. He wanted to become an A director. He had been an actor. Um, he was just beleaguered with the choice, uh, chagrined, unhappy with the choice of Peter Lorre. He could not fathom why they would cast a Hungarian in a Japanese role. And he wasn't happy about being handed this assignment. He, he really, this was considered a B assignment. At least he considered it a B assignment. He wanted an A assignment. And then he went to New York to visit Lori because Lori was in a sanatorium at the time, drying out. I mean, other drug treatments. Uh, there were so many of them. And he looked at Lori and he was, he shared that Lori wouldn't even be well enough to walk. He was very sick and they wouldn't be well enough to even walk up a flight of stairs, let alone manage some of the the jiu-jitsu. I mean, yes, a stuntman would manage the major stunts, but even the smallest stuff. And he said that we needed a little bit of manual dexterity with his hands, and he clearly did not have that. So they had to cut, you know, cut that in too. So yeah, he uh, he wasn't very happy about that. But he 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 also complimented Laurie and said, you know, we didn't do much in the way of makeup to make him Japanese. We tried not to fulfill stereotypical physical cosmetic details, 
I mean, he had the glasses and he had the accent, but that's that's really all they left the rest up to Laurie. Can you tell me the story of Peter Laurie's teeth? Like, because his teeth do not look the same from those early days to the later days. What did he have done to his teeth? His teeth were very, very bad to begin with. A lot of it was bad diet, some of it smoking. Um, they became very splayed, and he developed pyrrhea, which is you know, basically a kind of infection. And how many coworkers told me how bad his breath was in those early films? I mean, she said it was just horrible to stand close to him and do scenes. His breath was so bad from this these infected teeth. And I'd watch films, and I'd go, okay, wh- at what point did he get the new teeth? I think the first, and it's in the book, but I think the first where you see the transition where his teeth splayed and they were, they stuck out. There's a word for that. I can't, I can't think what it is. Uh, I'm sure you know what it is. Um, uh, buck teeth. There was kind of a buck teeth splayed look to his teeth in addition to the bad, the bad breath. And um, he finally had them all pulled. Uh, he realized that they were really a liability. And here he wanted to play bigger and better roles. He even wanted to play romantic roles. And he did play a romantic role in Three Strangers, but he could not have played that role with those old teeth. There's no way. Uh, so he had all his teeth pulled. I mean, they were in a very troubled mouth from a dental point of view. And he got dentures in, um, I believe the first film he had dentures was The, man, uh, the Face Behind the Mask. And it really cleaned up his appearance. Because after the face in the mask, down into the Warner Brothers role, he became a much more attractive physical being. Uh, I mean, you can see the changes when they they pulled the teeth. It really gave him a different facial appearance. And he looked so much better. Of course, it was the fact that he got into into shape. He He was involved with a much younger woman. That is always an incentive to look better to take stock of your health, to get in shape. So he started dieting. He started playing tennis. He swam. It's all part of you know, taking stock of your appearance. And the teeth were kind of went along with that. But, I mean, had he had those teeth that were getting worse and worse, you can see it in the films. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Warner Brothers would have used him. Yeah, we were talking on the Stranger on the Third Floor episode about how the Peter Laurie of Stranger on the Third Floor looks versus the Peter Laurie of the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's night and day. And they're, and they're so close together, logically. What, what are they, like a year apart, maybe a little bit more than a year apart? And his appearance is so different. And most of it is the teeth. It really cleaned up his physical appearance. But the funny thing is, is if later, if you watch things like The Raven or some of his TV work, is how much more the teeth fell apart later in life. When he was in his late 50s, he didn't have those beautiful dentures. They were falling apart, and obviously he didn't maintain them. And, of course, he smoked very, very heavily. Uh, he was a chain smoker, and that takes a toll on your teeth and uh, and some drinking, too. And uh, just basically disregard for his health. It's, you know, therefore, you die at 59. Uh, his brother, who I knew well in South Orange, New Jersey, looked exactly like Peter Laurie. When I met him in New Jersey, he walked down the hall, extended his hand to greet me, and I almost fell over because I felt like I was shaking hands with Peter Laurie, and he had the same voice. It was eerie, but he looked like Peter Laurie when Peter Laurie was uh, maybe 52 or 3 rather than than later. He looked like a very healthy, younger Peter Laurie, a late late middle-aged Peter Laurie, but he said he was mistaken for Peter Laurie all the time. 
And his joke was, he says, yes, I mean, I look like him, but he, you know, he's getting paid for it or something like that. He's making the money, but we both look, you know, we both look alike. Along those lines, wasn't there like a knockoff Peter Lorre? Was it just a voice only no, thing? No, or was no, there no. a physical well, actor? That was a, a man called Eugene Weingan. I have the original deposition that he gave uh, attorney, Peter's attorney, Bob, Bob Shutan, who was a very dear friend of mine. But this guy just surfaced. People told him he looked like Peter Lorre, so he took it to the bank. So he started calling himself Peter Lorre Jr. And he let people assume the rest. And he even did a bit part in a Hitchcock film. And I think some other really, really small horror film. But it did. And then later he started claiming he was the legitimate son of Peter Laurie. And that's when Laurie's attorney stepped in. He took a deposition. And in that deposition, he admitted he was not. He had no reason to believe. He knew who his parents were. He was not Peter Laurie, but he tried to pass that off uh, by way of getting an entree to the film community and, and making pictures. And uh, in kind of in all the midst of this, I mean, at least it was pretty much settled um, that he wasn't his son. But the problem is, once Laurie died, he started playing that same tune. He started claiming again that he was Peter Laurie's son because he knew there'd be no kind of litigation or problem with it. Who's going to challenge him? It, it, it drove Kathy Laurie crazy. Kathy Laurie absolutely hated this man. And once Kathy and I were at a photocopy shop in North Hollywood, uh, copying, I think, some of the scrapbooks, and somebody came in passing a flyer around saying, there's going to be a party, you know, come come see this party. And Peter Laurie, and she, he found out that this was Kathy Laurie, Peter Laurie's daughter, and he says, your brother's going to be there. Oh, my God. That was the worst thing to say. I, I swear she was just going to take a waste paper basket and dump it over his head. But she gave, you know, she told him that is not my brother. And I think that it might be kind of fun to go because, but this, I, I would have hated to see the fireworks because uh, this, this guy had no, and then he would tell stories about his father long after uh, Peter had died. And as, as early as the early, you know, Peter died at 64. He tells stories early 70s about his dad was a hopeless alcoholic and and other things that you know kind of disparaged his his memory and things that weren't true. Uh, a, a number of things he just kind of shot from the hip. Then he talked about his father in, in in very negative ways. And of course, that was something else. And the papers and people had forgotten that he wasn't really Peter Laurie Jr. They just thought, lost all pictures of a guy that looked like Laurie Jr. and assumed the rest. So yeah, I've got I wrote quite a bit of that in the uh, in the biography because I had access to the deposition, and that had a lot of good material in it. Well, Stephen, what are you working on these days? Um, I've totally shifted gears. Um, whenever I mountain biked or hiked, I would tell the story of my grandfather, who a World War One vet staged his own death and disappearance on the Missouri River in 1953. He was out with a boat. He cut a hole in the ice because there were some ice flows there. Cut a hole in the ice and and basically gave the impression that he'd fallen through the ice when he was trying to repair the engine. He was dead and buried, and he turned up with a new life, a new name in Inglewood, California later. And when I was in my 30s, I was going through some scrapbooks in the basement because family has always kept all this stuff, an archive. And I came across a funeral notice, grandfather who was still living, he lived to be 91, 92. And I thought, okay, there's a story here. 
what and I ran stairs and said, Mom, I feel feelings for, for, for grandpa. And she says, Oh yeah, that's when he um, had amnesia and he disappeared. And she says, she went back to doing dishes. And it's like, okay, this is like pulling teeth. Um, but the ones half the family said amnesia, he disappeared. The other half the family said he was a runner, meaning he just basically said, I'm done with my marriage. I'm getting out of here. And this is the way he did. And this is the way he did it. And it's funny. It's because later in life, uh, one of the people I interviewed said, yeah, he always said he wanted to die on the Missouri. In a sense, he did. He, he, he faked his own death on the Missouri. But uh, and when I tell this to people, they say, there's a lot more to the story, but, um, they'd say, Oh my God, you have to do something with this. And, you know, I thought, yeah, right. Well, maybe I will. And I had a screenwriter friend in Hollywood. I told him the, the fuller version of it. He said, Oh my God, if you don't do something with this, will you turn this story over to me and all your materials? And I said, yeah, well, maybe I will. But, um, um, then my wife, who is my muse and my cattle prod, um, she said, you know what? You, you really need to do something with this. So I started writing on it. And, um, I think I have about 170 printed pages. What I mean, I printed this 11 point type so it could convert to a printed page. And, um, I guess what I like, I mean, this is really new to me, writing something that's you know, semi-fictional, but um, what's interesting to me about it is I like to surprise myself. That is a reward. I don't always know where I'm going. I try to surprise myself, and when I reread what I've written, that that's where I get some enjoyment. I don't just plop this out like, okay, he did this, he did that. No, no, we're not going there. There's a huge holes in the puzzle I don't know. I have got to develop those you know, uh, from a fictional point of view and make it interesting. And that's where the you know the creative you know, part of it comes in. Uh, I know he I know he was in Inglewood. I know he was here. I know he was there. But what about in between? I've got to fill that. I've got to fill that in. I know how it ended, but um, it's been challenging. And I think writing is the loneliest job in the entire world. It is. It's so painful. But um, this is far more painful than Peter Laurie because, I mean, I had all my materials w- with me and I kind of knew where I was going. Um, I, I kept it pretty much linear, the narrative. And um, I got criticism for the fact that I'd throw things in that weren't necessarily uh, you know, chronological if they were relevant. But, um, for example, I talk about the horror label in Mad Love and what Laurie felt about it. And I reference some comments he made about Poe when he was doing The Raven in 1963, because they were relevant to that topic. And so people would say, well, that's, you know, that's, not a, that's not chronological. Well, I wasn't trying to be totally chronological about it. But, but my book on my grandfather um, is going to be very nonlinear. And I really would like to call it Elmer's Glue, because his name was Elmer. But I have a feeling I'd be sued. But it's Elmer's Glue, because he actually did come back to his home after staging his own death. And, um, but I, I don't know, I would love, I would love to use the title, A River Runs Through It, because that would be so apropos. The problem is, you know, we have problems with that, of course. So, so Elmer's Glue is not quite as, quite as fun, but, um, there again, there I'm dealing with a mega corporation who's not, not going to want me to use it. So I don't know what I'm going to, what I'm going to do. I just told my wife, you know, my, my bucket list is to live to be 70 and to finish my book. Because I'm a very old dad, I'm almost 68, and I have a five and 11 year old, 
So I have a very, very busy life with my two daughters. So trying to find time to write is always problematic. Um, yeah, that's an understatement with, uh, with, a, with a household of kids and a wife who is a doctor who works, uh, when she's a veterinarian, who owns her own practice. And she is very, very busy. So I'm retired. I'm home. I take care of the kids. And I try to write. And I try to write. And it, sometimes I can't find time. Sometimes I can. So and trying to find actually pieces of time that are worth sitting down. I mean, you can't sit down for five minutes or ten minutes. You need a few hours. Sometimes those are hard to find. But anyway, that's, that's, that's more than you wanted to know what I'm working on now. You need hands to hold someone you care for. You need hands to show that you're sincere. When you feel nobody wants to know you, you need hands. All right, we're back and we were talking about mad love. So we talked a little bit about The Beast with Five Fingers, which is kind of interesting that it's another Peter Laurie versus Evil Hands (laughs) movie. (laughs) But Evil Hands, I mean... They're they're everywhere. When I started thinking about this, and I was I read a really interesting article. I, actually, I think it was it might have been some guy's college thesis, and he was talking about uh, hands in uh, these different urban legends. And kind of as an intro and outro, he started talking about hands in popular culture, and of course, he's talking about Star Wars and. My God, they cut off hands like crazy in Star Wars. Even if you think about the first few minutes of what some people call a new hope what i call star wars you know you've got the removal of walrus man's arm you've got c-3po's arm coming off and then of course in the second film you have the removal of luke's hand and the wampus arm you know and then the first three movies those horrible prequels they're just filled with hands and arms being cut off like crazy and it's just like uh are you trying to tell us something george do you have something about these hands and arms and again i kind of go back to the uh the whole castration thing and the castration anxiety because it seems like it's really played up especially when you have a father cutting off his son's hand that seems to be pretty telling especially in a movie that has so many incestual tones i never thought about the sheer number of i mean everybody knows well Everyone, at least of my generation and older, knows about Luke getting his hand cut off. But, yeah, I guess I never really thought about just, like, the incessant hand and arm amputating. (laughs) Count Dooku, Christopher Lee, he ends up cutting off Anakin's hands, and then Anakin manages to cut off both of his hands later on or in the next film. It's just like, my God! I'm not a big George Lucas fan. I am admittedly in the Star Trek camp and not so much the Star Wars camp, but of course watched the original trilogy a million times as a kid. And it just kind of, I feel like the reason that it didn't stick with me as I got older is because it does all these sort of weird, sad things with masculinity that I find 
kind of boring and they're sort of old fantasy literature cliches. That sort of hand cutting off as castration anxiety thing in that light makes a whole lot of sense. Though I'm still glad Luke got his hand cut off. Teach him to whine about going to Tashi Station. Yeah, I mean, talk about Orlock whining in this film. It doesn't come remotely close to the amount of whining he does in those first two movies. Also, have you seen... There's this, like, 1959-1960 film called The Hand. Now, I know the Michael Caine one, but I haven't seen oh. uh, the earlier one. Nor have I seen that, who is it, uh, Farrar in the, oh. the remake of The Hands of Warlock? So there's this Mel, Fer- which you're talking about, this Mel Farrar film that for a while you could find on YouTube, but I think only in French. And subtitles are around somewhere, so it's not too hard to find. Christopher Lee is in it as a magician, which it's like it's kind of a remake, but again, like Mad Love does different things with the story. That nineteen, I think it's nineteen sixty. Hands of Orlock does again something else totally different. It's not my favorite. I think it's the weakest. Like it's much weaker than Beast with Five Fingers, for instance, but. There's this other one called The Hand, which is a British horror movie, and it's this really weird sort of cross between a horror film and a film noir that's this post-war movie about these British soldiers who were held in a Japanese internment camp, or I guess a Japanese prisoner of war camp, rather, excuse me, and like tortured and have their hands cut off because they won't give information And so it sort of follows them a couple of years after the war. And of course, people start getting murdered and their hands get chopped off. And it's this whole it's it's almost like a creamy film, but British. It's demented, though, but it it has these sort of similar. I don't know if I would say castration anxiety, but as as directly. But it's very much about like. We're taking away your identity as a, uh, an Englishman, your identity as a soldier, by chopping your hands off. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's it's really fun, but has some slow moments. It's worth watching. I would like to see Hands of a Stranger. I didn't get a chance to check that one out from 62, because it looks really low budget. And, of course, as I was watching mad love and thinking about hands and thinking about amputations i was thinking of uh the brain that wouldn't die and especially the one guy's arm that gets ripped off in that yeah that's brutal i haven't seen hands of a stranger either but now that we're having this conversation i kind of feel like i it's like once you started to watch movies with a, a piano player who has their hands amputated and then starts killing people it's, you might have just watched them all. Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Do you remember that 90s movie? Which one? Idle Hands? Yes. Is that Seth Green in that one? Or yes. Is... Yes. And Devin Sawa. <laughs> wow. I remember liking it a lot. I remember it being really fun and having a lot of the sort of hand gags that sort of appear in Beast with Five Fingers, or there's like a flicker of them in Beast with Five Fingers. But that you would expect from a 90s teen boy movie where it's the sort of physical comedy that 
I mean, I at least would want to see in a, they're not really chopped off hands. I think it's his hand is possessed. Mm, right, right. Yeah, I think you're right. Which is very uh, Evil Dead 2 for me. Yes, and that has some hilarious hand-related scenes. Okay, so years ago, I'm down at the Maryland Film Festival, and I met this guy. His name is John Walter, and I end up finding that he directed uh, How to Draw a Bunny, the documentary about Ray Johnson, right? Okay. And I, I'm talking to this guy, and he's like, "Oh, you're from Detroit." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." He's like, "Oh, you, you know, do you like the White Stripes?" And I'm just like, "I don't know who this band is." I find out about a band from Detroit from somebody in Baltimore, right? But he goes, "Oh, yeah, I'm from Detroit. I was in the Evil Dead or Evil Dead Two, and I was like, "You were in Evil Dead Two? And so I don't know if this is bullshit or not, but this guy, and I think he has a credit in Evil Dead Two. He goes. I was the disembodied hand. And then he like takes his hand and like starts skittering across the table and then flips me the bird with his hand. And I was just like, okay, I buy it. (laughs) And I'm just like, what a random thing to say if you weren't the disembodied hand in evil dead Two. Can you imagine though? Like I also, I lived in Baltimore for a while and people in Baltimore are fucking weird. So I wouldn't be surprised if some guy just like made a story to, mess with people made up a story to mess with people but that is a really specific made up story uh, if it's not true (laughs) you know what i just looked up this guy again john w walter yes he has a credit in evil dead 2 he was in the sound department interesting i mean i know that certainly crew gets used to fill in for weird things i mean we could i talked about argeno earlier he's famous for having his hands stand in for the killer's hands, which talk about sort of opposite of castration anxiety. It's like some sort of weird murder fantasy that he's enacting on screen. And that we're all over and over again. (laughs) But it is kind of a, in keeping with this hand theme, it is sort of a weird cameo for a director to make in almost all of their films. Yeah. Does he show up? Otherwise, are his other body parts, like maybe his face in those movies? I don't think so. I mean, he he has a really distinctive face. And I think the closest he gets is in Four Flies on Grey Velvet, that actor is basically a more handsome version of him. I made a joke. I went to see Suspiria again recently, the 35 millimeter print that's kind of throwing around. Jealous. And there's the character who's got the new teeth. <laughs> and I was just like, and a cameo by Dario Argento. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad. I feel bad for making fun of his looks, but I was just like, he's very distinct. Looking. I mean, he wound up with Dario Nicol. I almost said he wound up with Ozzy or Jesus. <laughs> he wound up with Dario Nicoloni. So uh, I think he did okay for himself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad that Aja got the got her looks. Yeah, all of his daughters are gorgeous. You know, of all the Oliver Stone films I've seen, I've never seen The Hand. Neither have I, and I just really don't like Oliver Stone. So I don't think that is going to be on my list for decapitated or, or not decapitated, uh, disembodied, possessed, or dismembered hand movie watching list. 
I can understand that. I just remember my folks talking about that movie and how, and this is their word, how sleazy that movie is. Interesting. Maybe it's like an adult version of Idle Hands. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. I think what I'm picturing right now is more like a Brian De Palma film than an Oliver Stone film. Well, you know there'd have to be some finger-banging if it was uh, uh, Brian De Palma I film. hope so. I mean, I would feel really cheated if not. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't feel like your hand, Stephen. It's not my hand. <laughs> Except he would do the split screen so that you could see that Stephen's hands are, you know, next to him. Somewhere else, <laughs> right? <laughs> Brian De Palma, if uh, you're listening, this is a good idea. Yeah. Much better than uh, Dahlia. Oh, God. Anything's better than the Black Dahlia. <laughs> I hear that three-hour cut was really good, though. No way. There's no Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Paris. On a quiet street. In an old building. A dead woman's vacant apartment is waiting waiting for the tenant. Roman Polanski is the tenant. In Chinatown, he exposed the dark side of corruption. In Repulsion, he explored a warped mind. In Rosemary's Baby, he examined the occult. Now, the tenant, something altogether new, altogether chilling. No one does it to you like Roman Polanski. Lieutenant, a Roman Polanski film coming from Paramount Pictures. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of The Tenant. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam. Sam, what is the haps with you? Well, I think I mentioned I'm working on a book about the Peter Lorre film M, which should be out next year. And as for what's going on more immediately, the recent issue of Diabolique will be out in October and it's all kind of occult and witchcraft themed. I did a sort of big piece on Ken Russell's The Devils for it, which I'm excited about. Talking about disembodied uh, organs there. I mean, that femur gets some action. Yeah, that's... That's a rough scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that movie is amazing. I was so glad to finally watch that and and talk about it on the show because I had just never taken the plunge before. Oh, it's definitely something that everybody should get to see at least once. Have you ever seen that on the big screen? I screened it last year. And I screened a – so I I do – Every once in a while, I'll do screenings for this local, it's kind of an art venue that a whole bunch of things are held in the space, like classes, dance performances, musical performances, and it's partially funded by the University of Penn, so they can do some interesting things there, but there's a monthly film series, and I brought both the Blu-ray of the Devils and I brought this bootleg I have that I know floats around and I think a lot of people have this. It's when the film was shown on, I think, BBC Two. And 
after they screened it for the first time, they had this documentary called Hell on Earth accompany it. And it's almost a complete print. So it has that Rape of Christ scene added back in. And so I basically said, okay, this is what I got you. And it's it's always the weirdest crowd at, at these things because it's on a Thursday night. So it was all mostly people who didn't know me and had no idea who Ken Russell was, no idea what they were getting themselves into. And so I explained to them what the film was and said, "Okay, we can watch this gorgeous looking Blu-ray or we can watch the version with the Rape of Christ scene. And of course, everyone was like, Rape of Christ scene. (laughs) And I think they were horrified. So my work there was done. Fantastic. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Sam, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.